0: A great deal of Trinitarian Christians believe something called monarchical Trinitarianism. The question is, is this biblical or is this based on tradition? Today we're going to look at the tradition of these beliefs and what the Bible really has to say about them. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is the Dance of Life podcast, and I'm your host, Tudor Alexander. Thanks so much for joining me today. We are nearing the end of this Trinity series. And gosh, I'll tell you, when I first started the series, I didn't think I would have so much to talk about. But the Trinity is such a fascinating and complex topic and very misunderstood. As you have hopefully learned by now, if you've been with me through the series and if you've attended some of the previous episodes, like the episode on the, the various heresies that there are, on, you know, even the Old Testament stuff that we talked about with Jesus in the Old Testament, the angel of Yahweh, the word and the name, so many points and opportunities of misinterpretation, let's put it that way, because today a lot of people have strayed from this teaching, this core teaching of who God is as a triune being and what scripture reveals about that. So my goal with this entire series has been to really expose those things. We had to, of course, create a lot of co- context and content, really, on what did the apostle say about Jesus? What did Jesus say about himself? Why Jesus is God? Why he's Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, and yet separate from Yahweh and how Yahweh is multipersonal. We had to create all that context so we could get to really the end here, which is discussing all of the ways that people misinterpret scripture. And that could be because either they misinterpreted or because of tradition. So today we're actually talking about the latter. We're talking about tradition. Now, if you were with me in the last episode, we looked at the nature of these various heresies, and those are relatively low-hanging fruit. Let's put it this way. Modalism is very easy to refute. Anybody who's a modalist, you really have to ask yourself, how do you explain the baptism event? How do you explain the transfiguration? How do you explain so many times where there's separation? And again, you can't separate God, but there is distinction. There's distinction between the persons of God. And so it's like you can refute modalism fairly easily. But today's topic is very nuanced. It's a very nuanced topic. It's a much more theological topic. And it's also going to take into consideration all of the previous episodes that we've talked about. So if, you, if you're if you just joining, if this is a new journey for you, then I highly, highly encourage you to go back to watch the previous episodes and get edified, because what we're going to be unpacking today is a very nuanced topic. It's very interesting, and you're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn a lot about history. You're going to learn a lot about the history of beliefs and how things evolved over time in the Christian church. And hopefully you'll learn a lot about the nature of God and the Trinity and the triune nature of God, that, that the way that, at least the way that we can conceive of it, I'm sure nobody understands the Trinity. I don't understand the Trinity a hundred percent, but what we're looking at is the best model that we can come up with to understand the supremely divine and, and mysterious nature of God. There are a lot of mysteries. Christianity is not a mystery religion, but it has mysteries. It has mysteries. The mystery of the Incarnation, the mystery of the Trinity. There, there are mysteries in Christianity, and if you're not comfortable with mysteries, meaning you, you can't handle the cognitive dissonance of something not being according to the logical rules of the 3D earth and 3D reality that we live in, if you can't handle that, then you're going to run into error, which is what people do. People can't understand and tolerate the, the mystery of the Trinity, and so they they try to push it off balance in one direction or another so that it's more logical. And we looked at that in the last episode with the heresies, which again, they're very, they're different, they're very simple in some sense, because really what they, even though they're different, the point is this, even though they're different, they have one thing in common. If you remember from the episode, which is, they always seek to reduce the level of mystery That's how you know it's not true, because the truth is a mystery. And we've been revealed some of the truth, so we can marvel at it, but we we can't comprehend the full truth. The incarnation, it's a mystery. All of the heresies in the 3rd and 4th century, which we'll talk about a little bit today, that dealt with the incarnation were because people couldn't understand how God is the infinite God, also became man, and was simultaneously God and man. How can that be? Well, it's a mystery. It's the mystery of the incarnation. And that mystery is one of the foundations of Christian teaching. So if you reject that, you say, well, uh, I don't know. Maybe Jesus was created or maybe Jesus was God, but he he wasn't God when he was human because he was just human. He had to throw away that Godhood temporarily. All these different beliefs, which which try to reduce the level of mystery and, and fit God into a box are heresies. So we have to be careful with this, because these are topics that are very important, understanding the nature of God. But today's topic is probably something you haven't heard about. Nevertheless, probably about a billion people worldwide believe this, give or take. Mostly Eastern Orthodox, some Catholics, some Protestants believe this too. There's a guy on YouTube that's very popular named Mike Jones from Inspiring Philosophy. He's got a lot of Got some good apologetic content. I, I definitely, you know, I've seen some of his stuff. He he has a lot of good work in that regard. But Mike Jones also is a monarchical Trinitarian. He's a Protestant, which is very interesting. And he also believes in Christian evolution. So there's some other things. You know, everybody's got certain things that they have been deceived on. And so this is this is my goal really. Is it's learning as as I've learned and, and progressed in my own journey and, and done so much research. I'm a research author by trade. I've done just so much research. I've written several books and so on. Not to pat myself on the back, but research is really my thing. I love doing research. And what I've come to, ter- one, come to terms with and what I've realized is that there are really several major areas that Christianity or Christians have been deceived on. One of them is the Trinity. As you can tell, there's a lot of heresies already in the world. And today's topic, monarchical Trinitarianism, is one of those... I I dare call it a heresy. I really do. And you'll learn why I do. That's a heavy and strong accusation. But you will learn, hopefully, why this is the truth. It really is heresy, or at the very minimal, borderline heresy. It really is. I, I think that it is, and I think that we should avoid it. I think that we should not condemn the people who believe it, but really ask them to let go of this teaching because it really is quite silly it's very it's not as bad as like unitarianism and this is the point of today this is a very subtle teaching when we looked at the heresies last time the five major heresies it's you know those are low-hanging fruit when you're dealing like with unitarianism or modalism those are low-hanging fruit but now you're dealing with something that is much more nuanced There's a lot of fine theological points that we need to look at. Like Unitarianism, again, is very easy to refute. But then you had something like subordinationism, which we talked about, which we'll talk about again today. Now, if you recall, subordinationism says that, well, Jesus is divine, but he's eternally subordinate to the Father. So now you have something that is less low hanging fruit. It's like medium hanging fruit because it acknowledges that Jesus is divine. So it's like, okay, It's not an obvious attack on on the nature of God, but it introduces something to you. Oh, well, he's eternally subordinate to the Father, though. What does that mean? If he's eternally subordinate, then that changes Jesus's ontology from being equal to the Father, which is what the Bible teaches. So subordinationism was a heresy. But nevertheless, there's an, there are gradients to these things. And this is what makes this so interesting, to me at least. I hope it's going to be interesting to you. Because from subordinationism, as you'll see, we'll look at church history, emerge this idea of monarchical Trinitarianism, which has a lot of subordinationist leanings. And there's some other problems with it too. But again, it's, it's wrong because it makes an inequality within God. And a lot of people believe this. Like I said, mostly Eastern Orthodox people believe this. I used to be Eastern Orthodox. I didn't really believe this. It wasn't cognizant. This is the thing. The people who espouse these beliefs, most of them probably aren't cognizant that they're monarchical Trinitarians. Trinitarians. I wasn't cognizant when I was an Eastern. I mean, I wasn't really very theologically sound as an Eastern Orthodox believer. I just kind of go- went with tradition and went with what my parents did, but... Most people are in that boat too. You're not cognizant of what you actually believe. What do your beliefs say about God? This is the thing we have to always ask ourselves. Whatever somebody's teaching you or whatever you learn through tradition or through whatever, ask yourself, what are the assumptions? What do I believe about God? What does it say about God if I take this belief on into my mind? So it's very, very important. Now, Catholics also espouses, I'm not saying Catholicism teaches this, but I've seen Some Catholics warm up to this idea because Catholicism also has this idea of monarchy of the father. And again, also similar things like eternal generation, which we'll talk about. If all of these things sound like Arabic to you, don't worry. We're going to explain them all in this episode. We're going to bring clarity to all this stuff. But there's a lot of similarities between the Eastern and Western church. The Western church, Catholicism, doesn't teach monarchical Trinitarianism, but it has leanings in that direction and some Catholics have espoused this idea as well. So all this stuff is just really fascinating because you're looking at something that is a very old belief about the nature of God. And the question is, is it right? Have we been wrong about this monarchical Trinitarian thing? What's What does the Bible actually teach? And so that's my journey with you today. And I'm sure the question is probably on your mind is, what is the impact of this? Who cares? Who cares whether you're a monarchical Trinitarian or, you know, regular Trinitarian or whatever? Well, there is impact to it. And again, you have to ask yourself, what is the impact of my beliefs? What does it say about God? On a very, you know, absolute sense, we we are looking at the nature of who Christ is as God and equal to God. And we have to uphold the nature of God. And we have to understand the nature of God. And, and of course, we're not going to understand him fully, but we can understand enough based on what is revealed. And I think that's the point. So the impact is very, very significant on your theology, on your understanding of God, on your understanding of how Jesus exists, who he is. It's very, very important. Not understanding this could put you at risk potentially of drifting into other heresies like unitarianism like subordinationism there are a lot of heresies out there that are still alive and well the ones that i covered last time the five major ones unitarianism is still around binitarianism is still around people aren't really tritheists but there's modalists there's a lot of modalists and so all of these things ultimately If you recall, there are the major heresies that are low-hanging fruit. Then there's like, you know, I guess level two or layer two that's a little more nuanced. And so those ones are really the dangerous ones because there's still heresies like binitarianism, which seems to be very popular these days, or modalism. Well, modalism is kind of low-hanging fruit, but like subordinationism, having this idea that the Christ is eternally subordinate to the Father, that the Father is the only true God, which is really what monarchical Trinitarianism teaches. But can you see how people leaving the Orthodox faith maybe might become Protestants, but then espouse this idea of like Unitarianism or subordinationism in their beliefs because they were brought up in a culture that was practically subordinationist in their thinking of the Trinity? Do you see how this works? So all this stuff is very important, especially again, to me, I was used to be Eastern Orthodox. And I grew up with Catholic schools. I was very much in organized religion. So for me, these things are very uh, hitting at home, that's so to speak. But today will probably be a longer episode. So, you know, if if that's a thing for you, just use the, the timeline, timestamps that I put in there, use them and come back to it. Take notes if you need to. Today, we have to get into a lot of stuff. We have to get into a lot of history. We have to get into a lot of important points on theology which again to me it's very interesting it's going to you're going to learn a lot today so i really hope you'll stick with me because you will learn quite a lot of history and theology in today's episode hopefully now monarchical trinitarianism has three major parts that uphold this belief and we're going to talk about each of these separately and they are for the filioque which is the procession of the holy spirit and specifically from both the father and the son or is it from the Father alone. This is an important topic to understand. And we talked about this before, but we're going to reiterate it today. The second point is on the nature of what it means to be begotten. Because a lot of people believe that Christ being the only begotten Son is some, is kind of like God's only child, in a sense. Not that he's necessarily created, but he is eternally generated. In, In eternity past, he was generated from the Father, which again, all these things really boil down to, what are what is that? Just philosophy. There really is just philosophy. The Bible doesn't say that Christ was eternally generated in the past. This is a misunderstanding, and we're going to look at what the, the word begotten actually means. It has nothing to do with being eternally generated or spirated from the Father or anything like that. It has everything to do with Christ's function in the world. And the last point, which again, this is really... You know like the first two that I listed with Filioque and begotten are are important and they don't make if you if you're Eastern Orthodox and you think well the, the spirit proceeds only from the father, that's not like really heretical. I mean that's that's something that can be debated and certainly doesn't make any sense because the spirit pre- pre- proceeds from the father and the son and we can look at that in depth but it's not like a big problem but it does support this idea that the father is, which is this third point I'm about to announce here, which is the Father alone has aseity. Aseity means self-existence, meaning he, the Father alone, according to monarchical Trinitarians, is the one who is the source of life, even for Christ. The Father is the one whom all things come from, like the, the Son spirals out of the Father, the Spirit spirals out of the Father. The Father alone is the one who has aseity. Now, that's... That's a pretty different claim than saying the Father alone is the one who sends the Holy Spirit. See the problem? The nature of the word begotten is is also, it's moving towards kind of a heretical understanding. It's very subordinationist because if Christ was eternally generated from the Father, now you have several problems. And we'll look at all of this stuff, I promise. We're going to get very in-depth. But this third claim, which which it all boils down to, is, is the Father alone who has self-existence? Does the, does the Bible make that kind of distinction? Or does the Bible say that Jesus is Yahweh, just like the Father is Yahweh? This is, again, it's a mystery. So this is what we're looking at today. We're going to unpack all three of these. Again, use the timestamps. This will be probably a longer episode, but I promise you it'll be edifying. I really hope it will, because to me, these things are so fascinating. And they're so, again, so important. But the first thing we want to look at is, what is monarchical trinitarianism and so all right here we go this is uh this is a paper it's a theological paper from the international journal for philosophy of religion and Philosoph- philosophical study the paper's called monarchical trinitarianism a, a metaphysical proposal so we're gonna we'll just go down to this first section it's called monarchical trinitarianism and the multiple natures problem and we're gonna read a little bit about monarchical trinitarianism According to monarchical Trinitarianism, as expressed by M.T., the Father is the sole ultimate unsourced source of everything else and thus possesses a specific priority within the Trinity and reality as a whole. This specific priority grounds the fact of the Father being designated as God in the primary or nominal sense of the word. That is, the Father is numerically identical to the one God Whilst the Son and the Spirit are each with the Father, God, in a secondary predicative sense of the word, by each of them sharing in one divine nature. If you're confused so far, then don't worry. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not going to stay confusing too long. But as you can see, this is already there's some there's some things that should be raising your eyebrow, just just listening to this. It's very very off-color. But anyway, therefore, this specific view of the Trinity posits the existence of three entities: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who are each God in the secondary sense, yet there is only one God within the Trinity as only one of those entities, which is the Father, who is God, the primary or nominal sense of the word. This model of the doctrine of the Trinity clearly secures monotheism, which is a central aim of the model of the doctrine or any doctrine, through equivocating on the usage of the word God. As on one hand, it is used as a predicate in reference to each of the entities who possess the one divine nature, yet on the other hand it is also used as a name which solely designates the Father who is thus taken to be numerically identical to the one God. Now if some of this stuff didn't make sense to you, don't worry. The, the thing to take from this is what? Which is that third point that I just mentioned, which is aseity. Aseity just means self-existence. According to monarchical Trinitarianism, makes the father the priority as in like the father is the only one who is god in in essence basically i mean it's it's hard you have to choose your words carefully with these things because they all the father the son the holy spirit all share the same essence but the father's the one who's the one true god within the trinity if that makes sense because he's the source he's the unsourced source christ has his source in the father and so he's eternally begotten from the father the spirit spirals out of the father and the spirit is the source uh, the source of the spirit is the father and the father alone has self existence which is a very strong claim but this the question is does this does this is what the bible teach is this what the bible has taught us through the old testament through the new testament through the progressive revelation of the nature of God through all the things that we looked at in this series. Is this what the Bible really teaches, or is this tradition? And and if so, where does this tradition come from? This is the thing to ask. So we're gonna turn now to history so you understand the historical context of this and why people would believe such a thing, because there is a very good reason why people believe this today. And of course, it has to do with tradition. It doesn't have to do with the Bible, but where that tradition comes from is very important. So let's see. All right, we're going to look at this as a Wikipedia called Homoousion, Homoousen, Housian, hard to pronounce in Greek, but Homoousos is a Christian theological term coined in the fourth century to identify a distinct group of Christian theologians who held the belief that God the Son was of a similar but not identical essence or substance with God the Father. So here we go. This is already in the fourth century. People were were saying that, well, Jesus is, he's like the Father, but he's not, not quite equal. There's something different. Background. During the period of the development of the Christian doctrine and refinement of Christian theological language, which ran from 360 to 380, the controversy between Arianism and what would eventually come to be defined as the Catholic Orthodoxy provoked an enormous burgeoning of new movements sects and doctrines, which, went, which came into existence in the attempt to stabilize and consolidate a unique and universal position on complex and subtle theological questions. So the early church was really struggling with a lot of heresies. And because of that, they were trying to standardize, okay, what do we actually believe? And what is heretical? Which is important. That is an important move. It's not a conspiracy. It's trying to weed out what is not true. However, there were compromises, as you'll soon learn. One of the central questions concerned the nature of God and the fundamental character of his relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, as the pre-existent logos. This controversy was called the Trinitarian controversy because it involves solving the riddle of how it was possible that God the Father, his son Jesus, the Word, and the Holy Spirit could be one God, exactly, and that's a mystery. It's a mystery, and it's going to be a mystery for the end of time. The dominant position among Christian theologians at this point in history was the doctrine of Homoousianism. Homoousianism, sorry, because Homoousianism is a little slightly different, articulated and fiercely defended by Athanasius of Alexandria, according to which the Father and Son were identical in essence, divine in, identity, attributes, and energies, and that any deviations from this orthodoxy were to be considered heretical departures from apostolic faith and worship. True, and if you remember the two powers in heaven that we looked at in the Old Testament where the Jews for centuries believed that there were two equal powers in heaven. Why? Because of the word, because of the angel of Yahweh, and you had the incorporeal Yahweh. So this was to believe homoousianism, not to be confused with homoousianism. Homoe and homo are two different prefixes. Homoousia, so usia is essence, homo is the same. Homoousianism is the belief, which Athanasius was teaching in Alexandria, that the Father and the Son are the same. They're both equally God. There's no distinction of power or origin or anything like, or self-existence between the Father and the Son. Now, of course, on the opposite side of that, you had other people who were, some of them were heretics, like Arian. Arianism was teaching that Jesus was not divine. And so, that was a major problem for the church. They were trying to stamp out. Very important. But anyway, moving on. Just to let you know that even in the fourth century, people were saying that if you don't believe the Father and Son are equal, co-equal, and and equal in all ways, that's a heresy. So that's an important point to keep in mind. That is an important point to keep in mind because today people through monarchical Trinitarianism still believe that that the Father and Son are, are different, and they think that that's orthodoxy. Very interesting, isn't it? Moving on. The Homoians however had a powerful ally on their side in the p- person of the Emperor Constantius II. Overview. It is often claimed that Homoousianism arose as an attempt to reconcile two opposing teachings, namely Homoousianism and Homoianism. Homoousianism and Homoianism. Gosh, these words are some tongue twisters. Homoousianism, Homoousianism and homoianism. Let's look at these. So homoousios is a key word in the Nicene Creed of the year 325 and means same substance, homoousios. We learned that just now. Homoousianism was a continuation of that concept and taught that the Son is of the same substance as the Father. Consequently, the Son is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. True. Homoianism, on the other hand, refused to use the term ousia, essence. Homoianism believed that the son is like or similar to the father, but subordinate to the father. Do you see the problem? Very early on, this this dialectic emerged in the church. It is then proposed that Homoianism, similar substance theology, was an attempt to reconcile these two theologies so that basically we could come to a compromise. And this is how it all started. Very interesting, isn't it? However, homoiousianism was most prominently associated with Basil of Ansara, and the term homoiousios plays no role in Basil's surviving text, implying that such a compromise was was not the purpose. More recently, Lewis Ayers proposed that homoiousianism was not merely a compromise, but a significant and persistent strand in early Eastern theology. And it still is today through monarchical Trinitarianism. So this is a little bit of Interesting church history. There's a lot, you know, this stuff, you could write books and read books and spend quite a lot of time on it. So my goal is really just to give you an introduction to the context of it. But now we want to turn to subordinationism. We've talked about subordinationism before. This is also another strand that is very important. Subordinationism is a Trinitarian doctrine wherein the Son, and sometimes also the Holy Spirit, is subordinate to the Father not only in submission and role, but with actual ontological subordination to varying degrees. And this is also another key word, varying degrees, because there's varying degrees of people who believe varying levels of subordinationism. Monarchical Trinitarianism is a subordinationist doctrine. Now, people will deny that, but really, if you examine its premises, like we will today, you will see how this comes out of subordinationism. It's not as obvious as subordinationism. This is why these things are so nuanced and why this is such a complex topic, why it needs all this context. Because it's not as obvious as saying, well, yeah, Jesus is just created or Jesus is subordinate to the Father forever. No, it's saying, well, Jesus is God and they have the same essence, but he's spiraling out of the Father. And there's all these like philosophical conjectures that ultimately, really, they're subordinationous to nature. And, and they tend towards subordinationism if you really think about it. The Father alone having self-existence is a premise that creates subordination that makes a different ontology within Christ. Very, very important. And it's very important to realize that the early church considered that a heresy and there was debate about that. So this is not, what I'm presenting to you here is not my own ideas. It's not something new, but rather we're looking back at tradition and we're looking at the history of tradition because very powerful and influential people Theologians in the church believed the Father and the Son are co equal and co eternal. They're the same. They're not the same person, but they're the same in all aspects. And of course, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and so on. But moving on. Subordinationism posits a hierarchical ranking of the persons of the Trinity, implying ontological subordination of the persons of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It was condemned as heretical in the Second Council of Constantinople. So it was a heresy when it was there in the 3rd or 4th century. Remember, homoousian homo is the same uh, essence. So they're, they're co-equal. Father and son are the same. Not the same person, but just equal. Homoian were the people that said, well, we don't want to say usia, meaning we don't want to say that the same essence. We don't want to make Jesus equal with the Father. They're similar, but Jesus is different. Those are the subordinationists. Then you had this teaching of... Homoiousios, which is a similar substance, similar essence, which again, all these things are really, they're kind of conjecture, really, when you think about it. God is not some philosophical construct. He is a being. He is a being that exists multipersonally. personally There's no other being in the universe that exists that way. That's unique to God. And that's a mystery that we can marvel at. But moving on, these things were declared, a, the subordinationism was declared a heresy. And yet people are still subordinationists today. Uh, they very much are. Unitarianism is a subordinationist teaching. There's a lot of things we looked at in previous episodes of subordinationism and how it influenced a lot of things. Even like Seventh-day Adventists, many of the founders were subordinationists. We'll read about that too. Moving on. It is not to be confused with Arianism as subordination subordinationism has been generally viewed as closer to the Nicene-Constantinople view. Just like what I said previously, there are layers of heresy and subordinationism is not as low-hanging fruit as Unitarianism. Unitarianism, basically denying the divinity of Christ, that's very low-hanging fruit. That's easy to refute in many, many ways. Subordinationism is like, well, we're going to... Christ is Christ is divine, but he's not just divine like the Father. He's a little less divine. Do you see how that's a little trickier? It's like, well, you're not saying that Christ isn't divine. So now I have to figure out more nuanced proofs to to, to, to to refute this, to basically say, well, how is Christ actually equal to the Father? You have to dig a little deeper. You see how, how this works? But nevertheless, it's a heresy. Now, while Aaronism was developed out of it, it did not confess the personality of the Holy Spirit and the eternity of the Son. So these things, look, there's nothing new under the sun. binitarians today deny the person of the Holy Spirit. And some binitarians I've seen Again, there's so much variation to this, but some Unitarians are subordinationists. They think that the, the Son is just eternally generated from the Father, and the Spirit is like this force between them. There's so many different views, because again, you're trying to reduce the mystery. It is confounding that God exists as one being in three persons. That's something that we can't, we can't imagine how that works. We, we don't operate by those rules but you're dealing with God. Of course, it's gonna be confounding in that sense. You're not going to be able to fit his nature into your brain. It's a mystery. And when you try to fit it into your brain in a more logical, sequential way of little boxes, then you run into problems. Remember, the thing that distinguishes the spirit world from our world, or I should say the, the other way around, is that our world, things cannot Two things cannot fit in the same space at the same time, okay? You can't put two things in the same space at the same time. This is the fundamental principle of physical reality. Now, people apply this principle to the nature of God and say, well, Jesus and the Father can't be in the same space in my mind as co-equal and co-eternal. That just doesn't make any sense to me. How is that possible? So let's let's shift things out a little bit. Well, let's say the Father alone has a deity. Or let's say, you know, the son is, you know, subordinate to the father and he, he's eternally generated or whatever, you know, all these types of philosophical conjectures that put Jesus and the father in a different spot. Do you see how this works? In your mind, now there's two different spots. Oh, okay. Now there's a sequence. There's a way that this flows and now it makes sense, but that's not the right way. That's not correct. And so these things have been going on for quite a long time, but let's look at some history with subordinationism. It's very Gosh, this stuff is so interesting, and there's a lot to cover. So again, you know, this will probably be a longer episode, but just just take notes and use the the timestamps accordingly. History. Anti-Nicene, meaning prior to Nicene. According to Baddock, virtually all Orthodox theologians prior to the Arian controversy in the latter half of the 4th century were subordinationists to some extent. Yeah, a lot of the church fathers we're going to look at were subordinationists. This also applies to Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen, Hippolytus, Justin Martyr, and Novatian. So all these people, the church fathers, the people who the Orthodox Church and the Catholics rely on and constantly quote instead of quoting, quoting scripture, they were subordinationists. Now subordinationism was declared a heresy. Isn't that interesting? Also being found in the ascension of Isaiah. However, subordinationism wasn't taught without exception in the early church, no indications of subordination of the Son to the Father exist in the writings of Ignatius of Antioch. Not to be confused with Ignatius of Loyal, two different people, or in the early Odes of Solomon, teaching the same position as declared in the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople. It is also disputed by some if Irenaeus taught subordinationism. So there, there was a lot of a lot was the climate, the climate of the church was very much trying to figure this out in the first couple centuries. And being familiar with the various positions that people took, like subordinationism, will help you understand where the tradition of these beliefs today come from. Where did this come from? And why do people believe this? And is it right? It's not right, but anyway. Arius and Alexander. The dispute between Alexander and Arius, which started the Arian controversy, arose in 318 or 319. At the beginning of the controversy, nobody knew the right answer. Arius, a clergyman of Alexandria in Egypt, objected to Alexander, which is the bishop of Alexandria, uh, apparent carelessness in blurring the distinction of nature between the Father and the Son by his emphasis on eternal generation. So Alexander was teaching eternal generation, which again, we'll look at this because it's not true. It's not correct. The Bible doesn't say Jesus is eternally generated from the Father. But nonetheless, this is what was happening. So Arius was objecting to that. According to Socrates, Ares's position was as follows. If the Father begat the Son, he has he that was begotten had a beginning or, or existence of existence. And from this it is evident that there was a time when the son was not. It therefore necessarily follows that, that he, the son, had his substance from nothing. So you see how this gosh, I love this stuff. Let's take a little break because this is so interesting to talk about. Because it applies to today. It applies to all the dialectics that you see today. Now, some dialectics are just happening by without anybody nefariously trying to create a dialectic, but nonetheless, understanding this duality that is always, the Bible says, do not swerve to the right or to the left. Countless times, think like 18 times, Christ said, walk the narrow road. The narrow road of truth is not one that goes to the right or to the left. Now, what does that mean in terms of your understanding of theology or understanding of really anything? It means to avoid these extremes because the devil bounces you back and forth between the extremes, left and right, left and right. So now, going back to Arius and, Alex- and uh, the bishop of Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria. Alexander was promoting a false teaching, really. Of course, people were trying to figure it out at the time, so it was it was still being considered but eternal generation which a lot of people believe today in monarchical trinitarianism is a false teaching because it teaches that the son basically was eternally generated being a, i don't even know how to describe it but he's eternally generated from the father now arius picked up on so his objection to alexander was actually good it was true if you're going to say that that the son is eternally generated from the Father, you're basically creating causation. At some point in eternity past, the Son came from nothing. You see how this works and why this is a problem? So you have one misunderstanding, one false teaching, which somebody objects to, but then when they object to it, they now create their own false teaching in in trying to reconcile this problem. Arius said, well, then Christ must not be divine. And so, ultimately, you have this ping-pong now that creates a dialectic. But both of these things are wrong. Jesus is Yahweh. He's the eternal God made flesh. The Father is also Yahweh. Well, how does that work? Well, Yahweh is a multi-personal being. He entered reality through the Son, and the Son took on human form and, and was both human and God. That's the mystery of the Incarnation. But the mystery of the Incarnation also works with the mystery of the Trinity, which those two mysteries together are very like if you do not understand both of those and are able to hold both of those in your mind you're going to run into some serious theological error but nonetheless you can see how these things start to form one person went to the right i'm just using right arbitrarily and the other person objected and went to the left instead of objecting and walking the narrow road which is yeah that the sun is not eternally generated where do you get that from oh i get it from begotten in the bible what is the nature of the the word begotten? What does it actually mean? Does it mean to be begotten like we beget children? And so then you're trying to make that into a godly thing. Like, well, if God is eternal, so it must be eternally begotten. Or does begotten mean something completely different that you're misunderstanding? Do you see what this this leads to? So one misinterpretation leads to another and, and boom, boom, boom. They just go through time. But moving on. As explained in the first uh, article on the First Council of Nicaea, according to Kelly, the dispute was over whether the sun had a beginning. Very interesting. To argue this point, the parties referred to the source of the sun's existence. First Council of Nicaea. For the reasons of him being moderate in the religious and political spectrum of beliefs, Constantine I turned to Eusebius of Caesarea to try to make peace between the Arians and their opponents at Nicaea. The First Council of Nicaea. So there's this conflict, this dialectic that needed to be solved. And you're going to see what emerged from this. Eusebius of Caesarea wrote in on the theology of the church that the Nicene Creed is a full expression of Christian theology, which begins with, we believe in one God. Okay, so far so good. But we're going to see what the rest of it says. Eusebius goes on to explain how initially the goal was to expel Arius and his supporters But to find a creed on which all of them could agree and unite. This is a very, very important statement. So I'm going to read it again. But to find a creed on which all of them could agree and unite. The intention is good, but you'll see as we soon cover this, that the outcome was not good because they're trying to find something that everybody could agree on. Moving on, Eusebius of Caesarea suggested a compromise wording of the creed in which the son would be affirmed as homoiousios, So remember the I in the middle, it's not homoousios, it's homoiousios, meaning of similar substance or nature, not exact, sim, not exact substance or nature, he's different with the father. But Alexander and Athanasius saw that this compromise would allow the Arians to continue to teach their heresy. Of course, because if this existed, the Arians could have something to attack. And say, see, this is, this is a false teaching. Jesus has to be created then if he's eternally generated. It's so interesting to see the history of these beliefs come, come forward through time. But moving on. But stayed technically within orthodoxy and therefore rejected that wording. The decisive catchword of the Nicene Confession, namely homoousios, comes from no less person than the emperor himself. To the present day, no one has cleared up the problem of where the emperor got the term. Homoousios means of the same substance or nature with the father. Many theologians were uncomfortable with this term. Their objection to the term homoousion was that it was considered to be unscriptural, suspicious, and of Sibelian tendency. Now Sibelius, if you remember from our previous episode on heresies, he's the one who basically created modalism that there's no distinction in god everybody's the same the father is the son which is the spirit and so a lot of people objected to this idea that well the father and son can't be equal that's that's sounds like Sabellian heresy which again it's neither to the right neither to the left walk the narrow road so interesting but the emperor exerted considerable influence consequently the statement was approved by all except three post nicene athanasius stopped opposed subordinationism and was highly hostile to hierarchical rankings of divine persons. Good old Athanasius. It was was also opposed by Augustine and Gregory of Nyssa. It was condemned in the 6th century and along with other doctrines taught by Origen. Epiphanius, writing against Origen, attacked his views of subordinationism. 16th century and reformed. Let's see what the reformed theologians thought of subordinationism. In his Institutes of Christian Religion, Book 1, Chapter 13, Calvin attacks those in the Reformation family who, while they confess that there are three divine persons, speak of the Father as the essence giver, as if he were truly and properly the sole God. So Calvin was against monarchical Trinitarianism. Isn't that interesting? This, he says, definitely cast the Son down from his rank, which is true. This is because it implies that the Father is God in a way that the Son is not. Absolutely. Exactly my point today. Modern scholars are agreed that this was a 16th century form of what today is called subordinationism. Richard Mueller says Calvin recognized that this, that what his opponents were teaching amounted to a radical subordination of the second and third persons, with the result that the Father alone is truly God. Ellis adds that this teaching also implied tritheism, three separate gods, which, uh, yeah, it, it kind of does if you think about it. If the Father is a different god, kind of god than the son and he has a seity the, the son doesn't have a seity that is a significant difference between the father and the son which means that the son if he's god then he's a different kind of god than the father and so you have multiple gods you at least have two gods but if the holy spirit is a person as well if you believe that and you're a subordinationist then you you're basically a tri-theist you have three gods Do you see the problem? Do you see why the the mystery of the Trinity has to be upheld? Otherwise, you just, every way, which way you try to take it, to make it more sensical or logical, you run into problems. You really do. But learning to see the history of the belief of this is very important. 17th century Arminianism. Jacob Arminius, in contrast to Calvin, argued that the beginning of the Son should be understood as the generation of the person of the Son, and therefore the attribute of self-existence or aseatus, belong to the Father alone. So Arminius, who is the originator of your free will salvation, which is wrong, that's a whole can of worms, but he also believed in monarchical Trinitarianism. He believed that the Father alone has aseity. Isn't that interesting? Moving on. His disciple Simon Biscop, who assumed the name Episcopius, went further speaking openly and repeatedly of the subordination of the Son. Uh-oh. He wrote, it's certain, it is certain from these same scriptures that to these People's divinity and divine perfections, the Son and the Spirit, are attributed, but not collaterally or coordinately, but subordinately. Ellis says his discussion of the importance of recognizing subordination among the persons takes up nearly half of the chapter on the Trinity. Very much a subordinationist, and the following four chapters are largely taken up with the implications of his, of this subordination. In 17th century England, Arminian subordinationism gained wide support from leading English divines including Bishop John Bull, Bishop John Pearson, Samuel Clark, and one of the most, who was one of the most learned biblical scholars of his day. Eastern Orthodox and Catholics. Last bit, and we have a little bit more with Lutherans, but my gosh, it is everybody, that's why I said you'd be surprised how many people either believe monarchical Trinitarianism, whether they know it or not, or they lean in that direction without realizing where these beliefs come from. Eastern Orthodox. According to Eastern Orthodox view, the Son is derived from the Father, who alone is without cause or origin. See the problem? Hopefully you do. In this view, the Son is co-eternal with the Father, or even in terms of the co-equal uncreated nature shared by the Father and the Son. So again, it's it's like, again, monarchical Trinitarians, especially Eastern Orthodox theologians, will say, no, we're not subordinationists. The Son is co-eternal, he's co-equal in terms of the divine nature. But the Father alone has a sayety. He's the one that's the source that the, the Son is being begotten and spirated from. Well, that's not the same then. You can't you can't say that they have the same nature when the Father alone is seen as God, as the God of the Trinity essentially, in, in, in a nominal nature, and the and the Father alone has a sayety. That that doesn't make him equal with that doesn't make the Son equal with the Father. Do you see the, the philosophical gymnastics that are being danced with us? I hope you do. Moving on. This view is sometimes misunderstood by Western Christians as subordinationist. Well, it is. It really is. And I hate to say that, but it is. It's a subordinationist view. The same doctrine is asserted by Western theologians, such as Augustine, even when not using the technical term, monarchy of the father. Western view is often viewed by the Eastern church as being close to modalism. Of course. Do you remember the the original... Like debate between Alexander and Arius, how there was like one of them basically believed in eternal generation, which is not true, which prompted the other one to, to object. Of course, he should object. That's not true. But his objection led him into apostasy, Unitarianism. So you had these, again, you always have two opposites. You have the East is basically accused of subordinationism, which is actually is true. That the monarchical trinitarian view is a subordinationist view. It comes out of subordinationism, and ultimately, it says that the Father and the Son are different in a very significant way. Not in a way like, well, only the Father sends the Holy Spirit, which you could argue is an economical thing, even though there's just a lot more proof that both the Father and the Son send the Spirit either way if if you believe the father alone sends the spirit that's more of an economical type of thing even though you could still argue that that could be a subordinationist type of thing but either way it's not as serious as saying the father alone has a sayety. the son doesn't have that he doesn't have that property well now you're making a difference between the father and the son they're not co-equal oh but it's the divine nature and this and that well that's philosophy man and as you'll see in the ensuing episodes we have couple more episodes with the Eastern Orthodoxy at the end of this series. I just have like maybe two or three more. I don't know how many it will be, but you'll see that Eastern Orthodoxy is a very mystical, philosophical religion. It really is. They have a lot of Greek philosophy that's influenced their views. And because they rely on church fathers and tradition, this is where these beliefs come from. But nonetheless, the West is accused of modalism. Oh, you can't make everybody co-equal. That's just like modalism. Well, no, it's not. Modalism is the Father is the Son, is the Spirit, and He's just phasing in and out. That's not what the Bible teaches. So, you see how people have a hard time going on the narrow road. And this is what, again, I'm hoping to espouse in you today, which is the idea that you have to be able to dance between these two extremes. Remember that there is inseparability of God meaning you can't chop God into separate parts, like with monarchical Trinitarianism. You can't say, well, there is a line between the Father and the Son. The Son doesn't have a sayety, and the the Father does. You can't do that. You can't separate God like that. However, there is distinction between God and the persons of God. These two, God has distinction and unity within himself. People who go too much to one side or the other create heresy. Monarchical Trinitarianism is on the side of separation, but again, it's not like Unitarianism, where it's low-hanging fruit and you say, "Yep, chop." Only God is the fa- only uh, the Father is God and Jesus is created. That's low-hanging fruit. That's very easy to see, even if you don't have a lot of theological study or whatever else. If you're if you're born again Christian, would you believe Jesus is a God? You can see why Unitarianism, which makes a chop between the Father and the Son, in terms of divinity in nature, you can see why that's wrong. I mean, it's very clearly wrong. But now what about subordinationism? That's a little harder to see. And then one layer beyond that is monarchical Trinitarianism, which is subordinationist, but it's very, very subtle, very subtly subordinationist. Why is monarchical Trinitarianism wrong? Well, because again, you're drawing a line between the Father and the Son in terms of self-existence. God is one being. That being is self-existent but that being also exists in plurality. That means the spirit is self-existent. The son is self-existent and the father is self-existent. How does that work in terms of our universe? It doesn't because God does not bound by the rules of time and space where two things have to fit in the same space, at the same time. Remember the demoniac that was possessed with, with whatever, how many demons they were all in him and speaking through him at once. So in the spirit world, Things are very different than in our material world. And a lot of these errors are because people project physical understanding to trying to understand God's spiritual nature. But nonetheless, the Western view is accused by the Orthodox as modalist, and the Eastern view is accused by the Western as subordinationist. Catholics. The Catholic Church also believes that the Son is begotten of the Father and the Holy Spirit is proceeding from the Father through and from the Son. So the Catholics got something right in the sense that the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. We'll look at this. But they believe that there is this begotten that the Son is basically eternally generated from the Father. So they, that's even one step even further away from monarchical trinitarianism, closer to the truth. But still not the truth because they believe this eternal generation thing. So Catholicism and in Orthodoxy are similar in their subordinationist tendencies, but orthodoxy is is more towards subordinationism than Catholicism is. Hopefully you will we'll put all this together very soon. Just give me some time. We have to re- review the history. We have Lutherans, we have Calvinists, and then we'll take a look at some other things. But hopefully you can see so far that there are gradients to this and there are levels of heresy, I guess I, I would call it. I mean, I, I hate to call it Eternal generation—a heresy. But if you think of it that way, it'll wake you up to the reality that this is making a distinction between the Godhead. If something is eternal, that is a change in the nature. If Jesus is eternally generated from the Father, that is something that is an aspect of His being that is very different. The Father is not generated. So, what does that mean? What does it mean if the Father is not generated, and the Son is eternally generated? It means that they're different. Do you see the problem? Now, that's harder to spot than monarchical Trinitarianism, which is even one step closer to subordinationism, which says, well, the Father alone is self-existent. Now we're taking it a step further. And then you have subordinationism, which is, well, the Son is just eternally subordinate to the Father. He's a different kind of divine. See how that's even more obvious? And then, obviously, one step after that is Unitarianism. The Father alone is God. Jesus is not created. So do you see how all of these go in a sequence? And again, if you see them laid out, at least in your mind, you can take some notes and write it down, you can see how they're all really related, but some of them are harder to spot than others. Now let's look at Lutherans and a couple more things really quick, because all this ties together. Subordination in yet another form gains support from a number of Lutheran theologians in Germany in the 19th century. Stockhart, writing in opposition, says the well-known theologians Thomasius, Frank, Delish, Martensen, von Hoffmann, Zöckler, all argued that the Father is God in the primary sense, and the Son and the Spirit are God in the second and third degree. He criticizes most sharply the Leipzig theologian Carl Friedrich Augustus Canis, for these Lutheran theologians, God was God, Jesus Christ was God in, the same, in some lesser way. So the Lutherans believed in subordinationism. The American Lutheran theologian F. F. Piper argues that behind this teaching lay an acceptance of modernism, or what we would call today theological liberalism. More recently, John Kleining of Australian Lutheran College promoted a form of subordination and concluded, well then, quote, is the exalted Christ in any way subordinate to the Father right now? The answer is both yes and no. It all depends on whether we are speaking about him in his nature as God or about him in his office as the exalted son of God. Again, philosophical gymnastics. On the, other, on the one hand, he is not subordinate to the Father in his divine essence, status, and majesty. On the other hand, he is, I hold, subordinate to the Father in his vice-regal office and his work as prophet, priest, and king. He is operationally subordinate to the Father. In the present operation of the triune God in the church and the world, he is the mediator between God, the Father, and humankind. The exalted Christ receives everything from his Father to deliver us so that in turn he can bring us back to the Father. Some of this stuff rings true. Again, you see how nuanced this is? This is now like a little closer to the truth and it's much harder to discern from what he's saying here what is true and what isn't. Yes, there is economy in the Trinity. The Son does things that the Father doesn't. The Son is the mediator. Christ, actually, which is the incarnate Son, is the mediator. And he's the high priest, he's the king. The Father's not the high priest. However, does that mean that the Son is subordinate to the Father? This is what I want to ask you today, and really consider the implications. As compared to, which we'll talk about next time, in The Case for a Triune Monarchy as compared to a free libertarian free will being, which is God, he's the only one that has free will, that chose these various roles to do. The Father chose to give a people to the Son that would worship him and glorify him, to the glory of the Father. The Son chose, freely chose, to enter reality through Christ and redeem those people. The Spirit freely chose to support this activity. Now, there are different economies within the Trinity, but God is one being who is king. Throughout scripture, God in the Old Testament, Yahweh is the king. It doesn't say the son is the king. doesn't say the father is the king. It says God, Yahweh, is the king. Now in the New Testament, Yahweh revealed himself through the son. Or I should say through the incarnation of Jesus. Because you're dealing again with human nature and divine nature. The divine nature of the son who came into the world through Jesus, through the body of Jesus Christ, the Jesus of Nazareth, that divine nature is not separable from the Father and the Spirit. I'm not talking about modalism. I'm saying there's no separability within God. So Yahweh as a being entered reality through the Son in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. So when you look at Jesus, you see the Father. There's no distinction, or I should say, there's no separating the nature of the Son from the Father. And yet you also have the human nature, which is distinct. And that human nature, the Christ, Jesus was born at some point in time. That human nature is what plays into the economy of Jesus being the high priest, of Jesus doing the intercession, all these different various things that are mentioned, right? And coming back to destroy the Antichrist power on the earth and then give the kingdom to the Father. But then what happens? What happens? What happens is God will be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, well, look at that. The triune God will rule through the body of Jesus Christ on earth. That's, what, that's the future we're headed to, which is triune monarchy. Not monarchy of the Father, not some subordinate understanding where Jesus is king, but then the, the Father is actually king. So Jesus is kind of like a vice regent. The Bible doesn't say Jesus is a vice regent. The Bible says that Jesus is Yahweh and that Yahweh is king. So how do you make sense of that? Well, Yahweh is a triune being and he's king. He, will always, he was always king and he always will be king. So, But you can see how these attitudes have shaped through history within Protestant beliefs, within Catholic beliefs, within Eastern Orthodox beliefs. They're very prevalent beliefs. So this topic is very, very relevant because a lot of people have caught on to these things. And, and there's philosophical deviations on each point. That's why I have to be very careful. Now, one more about New Calvinists. This is, while contemporary evan- evangelicals believe the historically agreed fundamentals of the Christian faith, including the Trinity, among the New Calvinist formula, the Trinity is one God and three equal persons, among whom there is economic subordination, as, for example, when the Son obeys the Father. As recently as 1977, the concept of economic subordinationism has been advanced in New Calvinist circles. In the New Testament teaching on the role of relationship of men and women, Presbyterian minister George Knight wrote that the son is functionally, but not ontologically, subordinate to the father, thus thus positing that eternal functional subordination does not necessarily imply ontological subordination. So again, philosophical gymnastics, the reception of such doctrine among other evangelicals, has yielded certain controversy. So again, it's trying to figure out there's nothing new under the sun. How can we how can we fit this into our brain? How can we put Christ over here and the Father over here so that they're in two separate spaces and they can relate to each other? So it makes sense. As opposed to acknowledging that this is a mystery. There is economy within the Trinity, but the question is, is that economy a result of subordination or cooperation? You ever ask yourself that? That's an interesting point. It's a... It's a fascinating and foundational point. There is economy between the Trinity. There are things that the Son did through through Christ. There are things that the Father did. There are things that the Spirit did. But again, even on the sheet that we created for this series, where there is, there are, out like we talked about in the Trinity and salvation, how there are different roles that the Bible highlights for, for each person. The Father predestined, The Son entered reality and and atoned for these people. The Spirit seals all these different things. But you can't... Don't take that dogmatically because you can't separate God. I'm not talking about inseparable operations. I'm not talking about modalism. I'm just saying you cannot say, well, the Father predestines people and there's a line between the Father and the Son. Like the Son had no choice in that. Or there's no... Like, only the Father does that. It's, it's That kind of thinking is too much to one side of the road. You have to follow a narrowed approach. The Bible gives you highlighted things about what, what is happening in the, in the triune Godhead. Now, that should be taken as like, okay, there are different angles of things that I can look at. There are different truths, but they're all part of—it's like you're looking through a keyhole— And you're seeing various pictures, and you're seeing various angles and different things. But you can't really see the full thing because it's a mystery. Do you see the importance here? So when we see economies in the Bible where the sun is doing something, the spirit is doing something, these are just different angles that we're seeing. It doesn't mean that there's subordination. It means that there's cooperation, if anything. God is a free being. He has libertarian free will. He's the only being that has uh, libertarian free will. And so the result of economies is not a result of subordination. It's a result of cooperation out of love between the persons of the Trinity. This is very important, but you see people have to fit it into a box. Well, you know, they're they're co-equal and co-eternal, but there's economical subordination. That's the only way that, that you could have economies through subordination. Well, no, what if you had economy because of cooperation? What if you had economy between the different persons out of mutual love and agreement? you ever think about that? That's something to consider. But if you think that there has to be subordination, now you're, you're pushing the, the model of the Trinity somewhere, either towards subordinationism or towards something. And of course, these ideas are nothing new. These are old, old ideas. Now, there's also, gosh, there's so much to talk about this stuff. We talked about this before, This is the Adventist, anti Trinitarian, and Alexandrian theology. This is again kind of going back to this idea of this subordinationist history, but from a different lens. The Alexandrian school. We talked about this in the subordinationist episode. Arguments so eloquently defending the idea of Christ's generation, his co eternity, but not co equality, do not differ significantly from the teachings of the Alexandrian school of theology that flourished during the second and third centuries. Not all positions of Alexandrian and modern Adventist anti-Trinitarianism overlap, the latter being more scripturally based than the former, but the two appear to be in essential agreement on the origin and function of Christ. So this is from an Adventist perspective, because there's an Adventist anti-Trinitarian movement, and understanding their subordinationist origins will help you understand this This context for everything we're about to talk about today. It's, again, this is going to be a long episode, but you'll learn quite a lot. Clement of Alexandria and Origen, the principal thinkers of the Alexandrian school, were both strongly influenced by Greek philosophy, which they saw as their natural ally in combating the paganism of the day. The subordinationist views were in general agreement with other Christian thinkers of the post-New Testament era and viewed as more compatible with the monotheism of the, New, of the Old Testament. So where does this come from? One other quick break. The the reason the fathers were so subordinationist in their thinking was it was compatible with Greek philosophy because Greek philosophy talks about the Logos. There's there's a philosophical underpinning to this. But also, they were trying to combat paganism, which obviously paganism is multiple gods, polytheism. So we have to be staunch you know, asserters of monotheism. And of course, if you say that Jesus is God and also the father is God, and you're trying to imagine. So imagine how many people today don't understand the Trinity after 2000 years of Christianity and they can't, they can't stomach it. So they have to be one or the other, either Unitarians or modalists or something. Imagine that now in a world where there is mostly pagan people that believe in multiple gods imagine how hard it would be to defend the truth. And so it's no reason that most of those church fathers were subordinationists. It's the thing that made the most sense to them, and it also seemed practical from a political perspective. You see how all of this emerged out of error rather than really standing for the truth, but also it progressed over time into what it is now, which is very nuanced through monarchical Trinitarianism. But moving on, let's, let's read more about this. Also, their positions resembled Greek thinking on the deity and its mediator, Lagos, which we just talked about. Thus making Christianity intelligible to the pagan audience. Evangelistic desire significantly influenced the conclusions of Clement and Origen. So there was a reason behind their subordinationism, and it had to do with ecumenism, being seeker-sensitive. You thought being seeker-sensitive was a 20th century thing? Think again. It's been happening since the beginning these Alexandrian thinkers both centered their teaching on the affirmation of the absolute oneness and transcendence of God and the need of a mediator. This mediator, the Logos, was the source of all knowledge of God to humanity. Clement and Origen spoke very highly of the Logos, pointing to his sinlessness and blamelessness and calling him the wisdom of God, the cause of all good things, and God, and God in the form of man. Despite such exalted language, The Alexandrian thinkers hesitated to ascribe the Logos, the supreme, underived divinity that would make him equal with God. Do you see the point? It's just like with Mormons today, who say, oh, they use all the same words as Christians. The Son of God, begotten of the Father. But what do they mean by the Son of God? A Mormon means something very different than you or I do as, when we say, Son of God, as a Trinitarian. So very, very important. Despite the exalted language, their actual belief was that Jesus was something different than the Father. Moving on. The matter of the Logos' origin was in question. In eternity past, the Alexandrians claimed the Logos issued forth or emanated or generated from the Father, with origin explaining the relationship between the Father and the Son in terms of eternal generation. There we go. This allowed him to speak unabashedly of Christ as sharing co-eternal existence with the Father and thus participating in his nature without making the former co-equal with God. So again, philosophical gymnastics. By, by making up this idea of eternal generation, which we're going to look at, he was able to say, well, see, he's, that, and now he's equal with God, but he's not really equal with God. Do you see the, the, the gymnastics that are being done to, to work this out? Following the first stage of his existence, when the Logos was with God, John 1, Christ became incarnated in the human form of Jesus. Subordination and Salvation The life of Christ as the incarnate Logos was a continuation of his perfect union with God. While on earth, Christ mediated the knowledge of God and through his example showed humanity a way to obtain salvation. The way to please God and obtain salvation was through imitating Christ's perfect obedience on earth and reaching the stage of perfect sinlessness. As as such, neither Clement nor Origen left much room for Christ's death on the cross. Very important. Focusing instead on his human achievements. This is all going to play into Eastern Orthodoxy, I promise. Promoting deification or becoming godlike, i.e., equivalent to sanctification, as the mode of salvation. Eastern Orthodox still believe this. This is so important. For both of them, salvation was this responsibility of the individual, just like Jacob Arminius in the 16th century, who was a subordinationist. Are you starting to see some similarities, some patterns, free will, salvation, subordinationism? Do, do you see the patterns of thinking? I hope you do. Let's, let's keep reading. Responsibility of the individual, believers who, being completely free and having the inborn ability to choose between good and evil were exhorted by Christ and the Holy Spirit to go through the stages of sanctification until they were made perfect. Alexandrian theology inf- a theological infatuation with Greek philosophy not only resulted in subordination as tendencies, but was followed by an even more sinister outcome related to soteriology, meaning the study of salvation, a fact that provoked several crucial questions. Was it coincidental that the Alexandrian thinkers were subordinationists who believed in sanctification as the mode of salvation? Or was subordinationism an integral part of their Christology, where the chief emphasis was on the earthly achievements of the man Christ? Would that be the primary reason why the Alexandrian writings, the cross is de-emphasized in favor of perfect sanctification? Now all of this f- flies right in the face of Eastern Orthodoxy because Eastern Orthodoxy, being monarchical Trinitarian, and as you'll see, well, we're, we haven't even gotten into some of the main points here, which again the three points that I mentioned at the beginning. But Eastern Orthodoxy is very much about works. If you if you look at the Confession of Dositheus, I forget which section of it, but it was a document published in response to the Reformation in the 16th century by the Orthodox. It says the salvation according to the church is by works and grace, meaning they believe that you are, you are saved by your works and grace. And if you have been Orthodox or you're like me, if you were Orthodox and you've not Orthodox anymore, if you're Orthodox today, then you are in a works-based religion. In practice, Orthodoxy is a works-based religion. Again, despite the exalted language where they talk about grace, where they talk about Jesus as God, in practice, the practical application of orthodoxy is a works-based religion. You, you have a lot of ideas where you have to do something in order to be saved. Salvation is not complete for the orthodox. Salvation, because again, they're, they're synergist, meaning free will salvation. You have to do something, otherwise you might lose your salvation. Sanctification is salvation. You don't have assurance of salvation as a believer in, in Orthodox religion. And there's all these mystical, there's so much, Orthodoxy is its own kind of worms. That's why there's a whole episode I plan, actually probably going to be two episodes at this rate. There's so much to talk about with Orthodoxy. But Orthodoxy in practice, as you can see with these subordinationist tendencies from a long time ago, we're talking almost 2,000 years ago, 1,700 years ago, What is the pattern? The pattern is, if you deny that Jesus is the self-existent God of the universe, what do these people have in common? They have in common a false gospel, a works-based gospel that focuses on Jesus' achievements and purity and being like Christ. Notice Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Catholics, a little tougher to to debunk with the eternal generation thing, but still subordinationists in some some degree. Eastern Orthodox, what do they all have in common? Subordinationists, Unitarians, forgot to lump those in. What they have in common is that all of those people, all of those religions are works-based. Do you see how that's a pattern that everybody shares when they deny the full equality and divinity Of Christ as the self-existent God. Eastern Orthodoxy, again, will have very exalted language about Jesus as God. They say, oh, we believe the creed. We're, We're Trinitarians. Well, yes and no. You're subordinationists, actually. And you may not realize that you're a subordinationist and how that subordinationism influences your understanding of the gospel and your actions in this life and your assurance of salvation and your sense of who contributes to the outcome of salvation? Is it you or is it God? This is so foundational to Christian belief. And a lot of people believe these things. And as you can see, as we looked at the history of the early church, we looked at all the way through the 20th century through Protestants. We looked through like Adventism. I didn't talk about Adventism in that last one, but it was from an Adventist source against anti-Trinitarian Adventism. But those, the Adventists were subordinationists. So subordinationism is a very, very common heresy, and it's influenced a lot of beliefs. So you may not be a full-out subordinationist, but maybe you've accepted some subordinationist leanings. This is, this is the thing to to get from today, which is this idea of subordinationism as it's influenced the gospel, as it's influenced people's belief about the nature of God, and the Trinity. So let's look at now a couple of quotes from the early church fathers. I'm gonna pull them up here really quick. Okay, this is from a Christianity stack exchange. It's talking about the monarchy of the father and you know various things in Eastern Orthodoxy. I'll, as always, I'll link all my resources. For this study, for the whole Trinity series, there's gonna be a study, uh, like a reference notepad with all the uh, references that I've used for the entire series that I'll upload at the end. So you'll be able to have that. But these are quotes from the church fathers on what they believed about the nature of Christ. So let's take a look. Tertullian. The father is entire substance, but the son is a derivation and portion of the whole. <laughs> That's partialism. As he himself acknowledges, my father is greater than I, John fourteen twenty eight. Thus the father is distinct from the son being greater than the son inasmuch as he who begets is one and he who is begotten is another. Again, is begotten, does that mean created or generated? Or did we get that wrong? But Tertullian was practically a partialist. This is a delicate issue to broach. Let's not leave the Tertullian alone. In eighty one fifty, he also said this, we reasonably worship him having learned that he is the son of the true God himself and holding him in the second place. Is that what the Bible tells you, to hold Christ in the second place or the first place? And the prophetic spirit is in the third. Do you see, again, exactly what I'm talking about? Gosh, I hate to stop, but this is Justin Martyr, actually. But do you see how—I hope you see this. This is so important. Do you see how Justin Martyr is trying to put the persons in places? Even though you're dealing with something in your mind, you're still trying to put them in places— Different places, two things cannot fit in the same space at the same time in our physical world. So we have to put things in boxes that are separate from each other. When things are in the same box and they're seemingly contradictory, we get cognitive dissonance. We can't deal with that. So we have to put Christ in the second place. And there you go. The spirit's in the third place. Well, no, spirit is Yahweh. The son is Yahweh. The father is Yahweh. They are all Yahweh. How does that work? Well, I don't know it's a mystery. We're not supposed to know that. You're supposed to marvel at it. But do you see the error? Do you see that that subordination and, and all these tendencies come from the fact that you're trying to reduce the level of mystery? I hope you see that. 8185, this is Irenaeus. For if anyone should ask the reason why the father who has fellowship with the son in all things has been declared by the Lord alone to know the hour and the day, He will find a present no more suitable becoming or safe reason than this. For the Father says he is greater than I. So they're quoting these passages like John 14, 28. And again, we looked at this in the episode on subordinationism and how subordinationists will use situations where Jesus was in his earthly ministry, reflecting subordination and obedience to the Father during his earthly ministry as a human being and use that as justification for his eternal qualities, which is why subordination is a heresy because Jesus is not eternally subordinate to the father. Jesus is God equal as the father is God. He came into the world through the son came into the world through Jesus and Jesus, the human being was subordinate to God because he was modeling the Ten Commandments. He lived in complete subordination to God. He's the model human being, but that doesn't mean that the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father. Do you see how? Again, because they don't, they're not putting the mystery of the tri- the incarnation into factoring the mystery of the Trinity. You have to use both of these mysteries. If you don't have these both mysteries in the in the front of your mind when you're dealing with this stuff, you will lead yourself to error, or you will be led to error. Moving on. This is an eighty-two twenty-five. This is by uh, Origin. Grant that there may be some individuals among the multitude of believers who are not in entire agreement with us and who incautiously assert the Savior is the Most High God. Yeah, that's what the Bible tells you. However, we do not hold with them, but rather believe him when he says the Father who sent me is greater than I. Again, same verse. We would not make him whom we call Father Inferior, as Celsus accused us of doing, to the Son of God. So they felt like, oh gosh, you know, we're going to make the father inferior if Jesus is equal with God, which again, you're going from one to the other. That's not what the truth says. The truth says that Jesus is God and he's equal with God, that Jesus is Yahweh. AD 250, this is a a treatise on novation concerning the Trinity. Treatise of novation. Who does not acknowledge that the person of the son is the second after the father when he finds it written because he who sends me is greater than I? All of them quoting the same verse, AD 300. For it was fitting that he who is greater than all things after the Father should have the Father, who alone is greater than himself, as his witness. Methodius. The Apostolic Church believes in one Father unbegotten, who is unchangeable and immutable, who is always the same, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, that he is equal with the Father unchangeable and unmutable, lacking in nothing, in the perfect Son and like the Father, we have learned. In this alone, he is he inferior to the Father, that he is not unbegotten, as the Lord himself has taught us when he says, "My Father is greater than I." This is Alexander. Now, of course, you remember these. We've looked at these, you know, discussions in the past with Alexander and Arius, and Arius responded to this. That that basically said, "Well, if if you're saying that Jesus is eternally generated." or begotten from the father. And that means he was created at some point. So he must be created. So you see how these things are just, error spawns into error. Because this is the nature of a dialectic and why Christ asked you to walk the narrow road, which is a mystery, it's truth. The moment you go into one direction, what does it naturally do? It ping-pongs you to the other, and it just goes like this. Ping-pong, ping-pong. One error leads to another, that one leads back to a response, and we just go back and forward. And that's why you have so many heresies because people don't walk the narrow road. But this is, again, this is a sampling of many church fathers. There's a few more, I think, actually, um, that I want to look at. Yeah, this is from Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. John Calvin. John Calvin is often cited by egalitarians, so also is Augustine. But just as Calvin affirms the monarchy of the father, so also does Augustine. Here is a gem from Keith Johnson's article on Augustine's Trinitarianism. So now we're looking at Augustine. Although he affirms that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, Augustine offers an important qualification. He notes that John 15, 26 does not say whom the Father will send from me, but rather whom I will send from the Father. By this, Christ indicated that the source of all the Godhead, or if you prefer it, all of the deity, is the Father. So here's, we're going to talk about this in just a second. So the spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son is traced back on both accounts to him whom the Son is born. Thus, although Augustine clearly speaks of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one substance, he also affirms that the source and origin of the deity is the Father. So you have theologians like Augustine, who are very much prominent in both Protestant and Catholic churches and Orthodox. I don't think the Orthodox really look at Augustine too much, but they still look at the church fathers and we looked at a lot of the church fathers just now, what they had to believe. We looked at Augustine. We'll talk about Augustine's error in just a second, but do you see how relying on the church fathers, instead of looking at the word and truly debating the word and seeing what is it actually, what is it actually trying to tell us in God's word? Do you see how relying on church fathers leads you into error? But this is what Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy do. They base their tradition or their understandings their beliefs on tradition. And tradition clearly is wrong. And we're going to look at that today. Like I said, this is a longer episode, but tradition is not correct. This tradition of this monarchy of the father of, of the father being solely the source of divinity, solely the source of life, aseity is incorrect. Now, Augustine here had a very interesting point when he talked about, in John 15, 26, that he he notes that, whom the Father will send from me, but rather whom I will send from the Father. So, Jesus is saying he's sending the Spirit from the Father. Now, he was right. Augustine was right in, in saying, okay, what is the—is Jesus saying that he's—that only the Father sends the Spirit? Or is he saying that this is a statement of origin? It's not a statement of economy. It's a statement of origin, meaning Jesus is trying to authenticate the the origin of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit, just like the Father sends the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at this in just a second, a little more closely. But the mistake that Augustine made because of the influence of his time and the subordinationist leanings of everybody else that he grew up with, and the tradition, the mistake he made is thinking that the origin that Jesus is pointing to means that only the Father is the one who originates the Holy Spirit, in the sense that the Father is the source of divinity, whereas the Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus is authenticating the Holy Spirit so that people know when the Holy Spirit comes, it's from God, because there's a lot of spirits out there. Do you see what Jesus is trying to say or is saying and not trying? He doesn't try anything. He just does. But the Bible is telling you that Jesus is authenticating the Holy Spirit as from God. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit originates solely from the Father or that there's this monarchy type of situation where the Father alone is the source of all things, including the Spirit and Jesus. No, it's telling you that the Spirit that's coming upon you And within you and doing these works is from God. So you don't have to feel it's a false spirit. Because people knew there were all kinds of spirits. So this statement is not a statement of economy in the sense that only, or authority, I should put it this way, probably even better way to put it. It's not a statement of authority in the sense that the father alone is the origin, which is what Augustine misinterpreted it as. It's a statement of authenticity, of authentication, The Spirit is from God. You don't have to, like, fret. The Spirit is from God. That's what Jesus is saying. He's authenticating the origin of the Holy Spirit, not stating, well, he's from the Father, and so that means only the Father is the source of the Spirit. You see how that's reading into it too much? Hopefully that makes sense, because all of these people influence the beliefs that people have today. You might even be Protestant. Again, like Mike Jones is a perfect example. He's a Protestant, but he's a monarchical Trinitarian which it's like it's how do you end up believing that but uh, obviously lutherans other protestants there were traditions of subordinate Adventist subordinationism within protestantism too so do you see how all these things come into play into how you think about god's nature and the economy within the trinity very very important so let's put this together a little bit now now that we've had all of this context i'm sorry it's been so much but ultimately You have to understand these things. This is a very fine topic. But now that we have all this context, with all the history that's going on, there's a lot of complex history. There's a lot of tradition. And people don't question where these things come from. The first thing to keep in mind is this, that the early church was wrestling with defending monotheism to to the pagans and, and trying to show that, listen, you need to convert to this it's not paganism. It's a monotheist. It's a different thing. So they're wrestling with monotheism, with the, with the impact of paganism around them, with heresies, and with the revelation of the Bible. They're, they're trying to find, okay, what is, what is going on here? Because the Bible is revealing unity within God. The Word was God, and the Word was with God, and you have distinction within God. People have been wrestling with that, same as the Old Testament, with the two powers in heaven. Remember all the things we talked about there. People were wrestling with this for a while. Again, they're, they're dealing with heresies, and they're trying to standardize Christianity because there were a lot of heresies. And, and that, in and of itself, is a good thing. It's not a conspiracy that they had a Council of Nicaea, or the Council of Constantinople, or the Council of Ephesus, or Chalcedon. Those things are are good things because they're trying to standardize what we believe, what is true and what's not true. Because there were a lot of heresies, as you clearly saw. Now, part of it was also not so good. Again, you had the part where you're trying to stamp out people like Arian and Sibelius. But then you had, you know, other parts where you're being seeker-sensitive to all the converts. Remember what we talked about with, with subordinationism in trying to basically make a compromise and, and, and say, okay, well, we're monotheistic. How can we really make this to where it's going to make sense to the people around us? Because the Trinity is too confusing. It sounds like paganism. It sounds like paganism. It sounds like tritheism. So we need to make it, you know, very easy to understand. So let's reduce the mystery. So it's very seeker sensitive in some sense, at least for the fourth century. So that wasn't good. And you also have... The whole thing with this, the unity of church and state that Constantine started, Christian nationalism, which I talk about quite a bit on my end time series on my news updates. You have the institutionalization of Christianity, which led to mass conversions, a lot of Greek philosophy influence, a lot of Greek philosophers were converted, which again, the the Greeks had a thing of the deity, which it was unseen and the Lagos, which was kind of the mediator. That was a Greek idea, believe it or not. It was a Greek concept. And so you had that happening, which is a large influx of these people coming into the church. And that distance itself in the 3rd century, 4th century, I should say, from the early apostolic era, where there were Hebrews and Jews that were basically continuing the Old Testament. Now you had kind of this Greek philosophy come in with Platonic ideas, with Gnostic ideas, and you had a lot of, just a lot of stuff going on. All these things ultimately led to all those councils I listed in the 4th and 5th century, and the councils led to some good things. They, They led to standardizing Christian belief, but ultimately they also led to compromises, and this is what it comes down to. All the context I read to you of all the heresies that were going back and forth, the conversions of Greek philosophy, co- philosophers, and you know, basically all these Greek ideals that came into the church. It's being seeker-sensitive, trying to be monotheistic, trying to resolve heresies, trying to do all these things, all of these things merged into a series of standardizations that also led to compromises. And the tradition of that compromise has continued today, especially visible in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and also visible in the Catholic Church when we're talking about the Trinity. The Catholic Church has countless compromises. We're not going to get into that today. But just on the the aspect of the Trinity, the nature of God, the Catholic Church has some compromises, and the Eastern Orthodox Church has a lot of compromises because of this tradition. Now, I want to look at the Nicene Creed because this is cited by Eastern Orthodox quite a bit. See, we're, we're the Nicene Creed, where we go by the Creed. Well, the question is, was the Creed divinely inspired? Was it, Is it equal to the scriptures? If you're a Protestant, you'd say, no, the, the, the scriptures ended with revelation. There's no more divinely inspired revelation after the book of Revelation. So the question is, if you're basing your beliefs on the Creed and you're all about the creed, then is the creed right? Is it an is it alignment with the Bible or is it not an in alignment? Interesting, a lot of people think the Nicene Creed is like this 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 thing that's, that's so authoritative and it's the truth and, and ultimately we can base our beliefs on it, but we're gonna examine the Nicene Creed because it's not, it's not as true as you think it is. So let's pull it up here really quick. All right, this is the Nicene Creed and we're gonna read a little bit about it just so you can see. Hopefully, you can see what I see. First, Council of Nicaea 325. There's also the first Council of Constantinople, which was about 60 years later, and we're going to read something about that, too. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, the essence of the Father, God of God, Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered on the third day, he rose again, ascended into heaven. From hence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And in the Holy Ghost, now in the in the Creed of Constantinople, this was added, and in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeded from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And the final thing is, but to those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is another of substance or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So basically against those who were denying the divinity of Christ. But there is a subtle little point here, which again, Arius was not wrong for questioning the eternal generation they were teaching. He was not wrong for questioning that. His conclusions as a result of questioning it were wrong, that Jesus must be created. No, the objection is what you're saying by Jesus being eternally generated is that he is created at some point, that there is an ontological difference with eternal generation, and we're going to look at the meaning of the word "begotten," because it doesn't mean being eternally generated. But nonetheless, if that's what you believe, then the the logical objection is what Arius brought up. <clears throat> but Arius Arius's conclusion was wrong, and so there's an interesting point here. The last thing I read, which is, you know, you're anathema if you question our our beliefs here. The intent one one side, you could say, okay, the intention is to. Fight Unitarianism, which is true. <clears throat> but on the other side, you could also say, well, they're trying to basically say if you, you question this belief system, if you bring any reasonable objection to it, which Arius did, then you're anathema. Do you see how this already started in a very early part of the church where it's like this nationalization of a Christian empire that would demand that you obey what it teaches? I talk about this in my End Time series quite a bit. It's a can of worms, I'm not gonna open up here, but nonetheless, just something to notice. Now, what are some things that we should notice with this Nicene Creed? Well, in the beginning it says, the Father is the one true God. We believe in one God. Well, who's that one God? The Father Almighty, maker of all things and invisible and invisible. So right off the bat, it tells you what they believe, which is that the, the, the God, the only true God is the Father doesn't say that Jesus Christ is the only God, the one God. It says the Father is the one God. And of course, they base it off things like John 17, 3, where Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Which, again, we looked at these things, they're taken out of context. Go see the subordination episode. These verses are taken out of context. They are using the human nature of Jesus in his ministry as subordinate to God as quote unquote proof that Jesus is somehow subordinate to the father or that he's generated from the father or spirated or whatever. But the Creed also says that the father is the maker of all things, but yet the Bible says that Jesus made all things. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. That's John 3. In reality... It's Yahweh God that made the, all things. Yahweh is one being. Yahweh is the creator. But if you remember from some of these episodes, like even the Old, the old Testament where we looked at uh, the spirit of Yahweh, the Trinity was present in the beginning. The spirit was present. The son was present. The father was present. They were they as in the persons, but one God was creating the universe. So to make a distinction that the father alone is the creator is not what the Bible tells you because the Bible tells you that nothing was made that was made. What does it say exactly? Cause I messed this up. And without him was not anything made that was made without Christ. There was not anything made that was made. Christ is the creator, but Christ is also Yahweh and the father is also Yahweh. Very, very important because again, you're trying to put spaces and distinctions within the Godhead to make it sense to you. Cause it doesn't make sense from a physical reality to say, well, the father was creating, but also the son was creating and the spirit was creating. Well, how does that work? Well, yeah, cause God is one. Yahweh is one being existing in three persons. All three persons were involved in creation, but the Bible highlights that Jesus is the creator, which is very, very important. Now they also say the spirit proceeds from the father. We looked at this previously, and we're going to see how this just doesn't work with what the Scripture actually tells us about the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. Very important. It also says the Father is the source, while the, Spirit, while the Son and the Spirit are basically sourced from the Father or spirated from the Father. Now, notice also that there's an issue with baptism, which is very interesting. I think it said it in here. Let me see. I think this may be in the uh, in the Constantinople Creed. Let me see, is it in here? Yeah, here we go. This is in the Creed from Constantinople, which was about 60, uh, 60 years later. It says, "In and in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, there it is, pledge, pledge allegiance to the new system, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. It's not water baptism that gets rid of your sins. It's being born again, which is the true baptism that gets rid of your sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So again, the the early efforts to try to create a confession of faith in the light of all the context that I read to you resulted in a compromise. And already you could see the shadows of this counterfeit system, which I've talked about quite a bit on my podcast to the Christian nationalization of society in the past and what's coming in the future. But you can see the shadows already there. One baptism. What does that mean? Well, they were talking about water baptism. They're not talking about being born again. They're talking about water baptism and fusing that with salvation. But that's not what the Bible teaches you. Obviously, water baptism, the thief on the cross was not baptized and he was saved. Because true baptism is being born again. It's repentance. It's repentance and faith. But this, look, from an eschatological point of view, this right here, these first institutionalization, you know, attempts <clears throat> through the creeds, through the various, um, excuse me, through the various attempts at unifying doctrine was really the start of this Christian nationalist antichrist power on the earth. And I've talked about that quite a bit. And so the question is, if this, is, if this is true, if this is the beginnings of this system with the creeds, with these various things that Constantine did, legalizing Christianity, converting everybody, bringing all these pagans into Christianity, creating a Sunday uh, day of rest, all these things I've talked about quite a bit, then why should we follow the church fathers? Why should we follow the creed? And why should we not listen and study the word of God and see what the word of God has to say? Do you see how all these traditions, so anybody who looks, oh, I'm a Nicene, I go with the Nicene Creed. Well, the Nicene Creed is wrong. It's not completely correct. It is a combination of some true things influenced by Greek philosophy, Greek converts, subordinationist tendencies, and a lot of culture that was influencing the time to to basically try to make sense of God by reducing the mystery. Do you see the point? Yeah, I hope you do. It's very, very important. But just because this is tradition, it doesn't mean that it's true. We have to question everything. If we want the truth, then we have to address the three pillars that mono that monarchical Trinitarianism uh, basically stands on, which is what I mentioned at the very beginning of this, which is the filioque, procession of the Holy Spirit, um, aseity of the Father, and basically the whole Uh, nature of the word begotten. So, let's get into it. This is really the meat and potatoes here and why monarchical Trinitarianism is wrong. And we start with the procession of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is basically, in monarchical Trinitarianism, only proceeds from the Father. So, we're going to look up some drawings and see what that looks like. If you look at, for example, this drawing, if you look, if you're listening to this, you can basically go and type in filioque <coughs> filioque Catholic versus Orthodox. You know, filioque is spelled F-I-L-I-O-Q-U-E. And that's called the filioque controversy. Now you can see Eastern Church, the Father sends the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in this sense, the, the, the diagram also says that the Son proceeds and is begotten by the Father in the sense that he's eternally generated in the Latin Church, you have basically uh, the Father is eternally the Son is eternally generated from the Father, but also the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So there is a slight difference in the Catholic Church than the Eastern Church, but they both share this idea of the generation of the Son, which is very very important because both of these are wrong, from what the Bible tells you. The Son is not generated by the Father. Nevertheless, the, the Catholic Church says that the Son and the, the Father both send the Spirit. So this is the controversy. Like, which, one, which one's right? Which one's true in terms of the Spirit? They're both wrong in terms of eternally generated. And we'll look at that in the next point. But the Spirit is the question. So this is based on John 15, 26, which says, But the, when, the Helker, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me." So, again, what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, is that a statement of authority? Meaning, does does he say the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father only? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, it doesn't say the word only. It just says who proceeds from the Father. And they knew, the Hebrews of the time knew the Father as the the, uh, immaterial God, the incorporeal God. So the question is, is Jesus making a statement of authority and economy? Or is he making a statement of origin, of authenticity? And this is the thing, if you remember, that Augustine got wrong. He got it right in the sense that Jesus is making a statement of origin, not economy. But he he went back into error and said, well, the father must be the origin of everything, including the son. Do you see how, again, it's like, the narrow road, you got to walk that narrow road. Otherwise, it's very easy to go to the right or to the left. But this is what this controversy has been based on. It's been controversy for a very long time, many centuries. But again, the, co- the question is, what is this verse describing? Now, if we look at John, earlier in John 14, verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Father sends the Spirit in Jesus' name. This is a very important point because to send somebody on behalf of somebody else, to have an ambassador, in in the time that they were living, you always had the agreement of that person to send somebody on their behalf. You didn't just send somebody on behalf without that person agreeing to the ambassador. Does that make sense? This is a very important contextual point. Now, another couple of points is very important is that Romans 8, verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Paul is equating the Spirit of God with the Spirit of Christ. Now you know that the Spirit of God in the Old Testament is actually the Spirit of Christ. Very important point, because again, if it's the Spirit, if he's the Spirit of Christ, how can the Father send the Spirit of Christ without Christ agreeing to that. Do you see the, do you see the error here? To, to assume that the Father would send the Spirit of Christ on behalf of Jesus as an ambassador, even though it's the Spirit of Jesus, and that is not something that the, that the Son would have a say in whatsoever. Do you see the, the problem in thinking? Now, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17, it says, The Lord is the Spirit. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Again, the spirit of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. Now, again, don't read that too dogmatically. It's just showing you unity within the Godhead. But there's also distinction. The point being is that with all of this information, does the question is, does Jesus have a say in the spirit being sent? Of course, the answer is yes, because it's his spirit. There's no no separation within God that way. Jesus agreed for the Father to send the Spirit on his behalf. He was part of the decision to send the Spirit. There's no separation in the Godhead. So to to insist that the Father alone is the one who sends the Holy Spirit is not in alignment with with all of the verses where, first off, it says that the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And the context that when you send somebody on somebody else's behalf as an ambassador, that person has to agree to it. That was the historical context. Maybe not so much today, but back then that was very much an important formality. Now, there's also a lot of scriptural context on the unity of the Father and the Son that all of these church fathers and subordinationists did not ever cite. you notice how they never cite those verses? For example, John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. John 14, verse 9. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? How can you say, show me the Father, when you're looking at him? doesn't mean he is the Father, but you're looking at the Father made flesh. In the sense that Jesus is the, the, the perfect image of the Father. If you want to see the Father, look at Jesus. You're looking at him in that sense. Not that the Jesus is the father. Nevertheless, him and the father are one. So how do you deal with it? It's a mystery, just like the incarnation. Again, we're trying to reduce the mystery, but it doesn't work. A couple verses later in verse 11, believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. John 16, verse 15, all that the father has is mind. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus said and and came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So put it all together. All that the Father has is mine. I and and the Father are one. I am in the Father. The Father is me. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. How do you make sense of that? All authority has been given to Christ. And yet, despite all of those important verses, despite the previous context I just listed to you, with sending on somebody on uh, somebody's behalf we still insist that the spirit is only sent by the father that doesn't make any sense but if you're a subordinationist and you have subordinationist tendencies where you prefer the father over the son and you see him as the ultimate god then you're likely to believe that and you're likely to ignore all of the things that i just read where there is unity between the father and the son the the son the father is not going to do something that the that the son hasn't agreed to do you see the point again it's it's not about subordinationism economy the foundation of Trinitarian economy is not subordination this is a wrong view this is archaic even with the new Calvinists that we looked at where they We're trying to have, okay, well, there's functional subordination. Well, no. How about there's cooperative economy? Cooperative economy. God is a free being that chooses within himself and does everything by agreement out of love between the persons. That's true economy. And if that's the case, then sending the Spirit is a common decision between the Father and the Son, that is done out of love, out of the will and purpose of God's good pleasure, that both have a say in, especially because the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So, when Jesus sends the Spirit and he says that he's proceeding from the Father, it's in John 15, verse 26, it's not a statement of authority or economy. Meaning, Jesus is not saying, when I say that, the Spirit is proceeding from the Father. He's not teaching that, well, the Spirit proceeds just from the Father. No, he's teaching and showing that the Spirit's authenticity and origin comes from God. The Spirit is God. The Spirit of the Lord, the Lord is the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ so that you know what Spirit you're dealing with because there's a lot of counterfeit spirits. I've talked about this recently on my podcast in the news section. The counterfeit spirit that's taking over the world with the charismatic movement. But that's another can of worms. Jesus is authenticating the spirit, not teaching some strict economy of subordination. See the point? I hope you do. This is so important. Because, again, what Augustine saw was somewhat correct with the origin. But then he veered off back into subordinationism by saying that the Father was the origin of everything. Instead of just saying, yeah, the, the spirit is just authentic. Like, it's he's from God. The Spirit is God. That's what Jesus is saying. So the conclusion with Filioque is the Bible clearly teaches the Father and Son both send the Spirit. Eastern Orthodoxy is wrong. So problem number two, which is the understanding of the term begotten. Now we get it a little bit deeper into this. We're going layer by layer. First, it was the procession of the Holy Spirit. That one's again not not so heretical or it's not a big not a huge problem but you're still subordinationist tendencies if you believe the father alone sends the spirit because again you're ignoring all of those pieces of evidence where there's unity between the father and the son Co-equalness no distinction in terms of authority or 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 you know power or quality or anything like that there you've seen me you've seen the father I and the father are one. No distinction there. So now we're getting into something a little deeper, which is this idea of begotten. Now, remember all the quotes by the church fathers where they stand on this? They're basically subordinationists. And the problem with this is that there is nowhere in the Bible that it teaches that Jesus is eternally generated or emanating or spirating from the Father. These are mystical And again, with Eastern Orthodoxy especially, it's a lot of mysticism and Greek mysticism that has influenced these teachings, which I'll cover in future episodes very shortly. But nonetheless, the Bible doesn't teach that, that Jesus is emanating or generating or or spirating from the Father. This is a tradition. The eternally begotten thing is a tradition. It's not the truth. And I can prove it to you because first off, where do we get that term or idea from? Well, we get it from a couple places in the Bible, most notably in Hebrews 5. So also Christ did not 5 verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is quoting Psalm 2 verse 7. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now this verse is appropriated by the author of Hebrews in terms of an appointed or appointment to a high priestly role. So begotten means appointing Jesus to the high priestly role. Jesus wasn't high priest before he was born. Jesus as as the human, Jesus of Nazareth, was born. And he was begotten, meaning he was chosen to be not just the high priest, but the propitiation for sins, the mediator. He's the uniquely begotten being, is the Christ. The Christ is the one that was chosen to do what he came to do, which is the ministry of salvation, to be the high priest, to be the propitiation, and ultimately to be the the vessel, the body by which the triune God would rule through at the end of time. Christ is ruling as king right now, and when he returns, he'll deliver the kingdom back to the Father, and the Father and the Spirit and the Son will all rule through the body of Jesus. That's the appointment of Christ. Now, Christ, I should say, the Jesus of Nazareth was not—he was born. He was born in time. The Son was preexistent, but Jesus, as a physical human being, was born. He was appointed do you see the, the importance of understanding this correctly? Appointment uh, Begotten means appointment. So when it says Christ is the only begotten, it means he's the only one that's been chosen to do what he's supposed to do. Of course, there's only one way to the Father, and that's through Christ. He's the chosen one. You have to remember the incarnation, which is two natures. You have the nature of God entering reality through the Son into the human nature body of Jesus who was born and created and you have the mystery of the incarnation where you have the son of God incarnate both equally God and also equally human he's he's fully God fully human Jesus of Nazareth was the chosen vessel for Yahweh to enter the world through the son and like I said eventually you're going to have triune monarchy But we want to look at begotten as an appointment, as an anointing of sorts, because there's other verses that support this. Matthew 3, verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the baptism. Now, what happened at the baptism? You had the testimony of the Holy Spirit landing on the uh, shoulder, presumably, of Jesus, and the testimony of the Father. And that was in front of everybody to show you who is the chosen one who is the one that's begotten not eternally generated meaning who's the one who is appointed to be the messiah by god he's the chosen one that was a begetting in a sense of an anointing jesus was anointed by john the baptist john the baptist was the last of the prophetic cycle and jesus of course is the king so he was anointed he was begotten and appointed a very special appointment now in Matthew 17:5, again we have another type of choosing situation where similar things. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, "This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him." Again, a special distinction for the Christ. He is begotten, meaning he's chosen for you to listen to him. You are to obey him, just like with the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament, if you recall from that episode. He's the only one in the physical world that you can obey and listen to without breaking the first commandment. That's the point of begotten. He's appointed to that role. The physical human being of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the incarnation of God, is the only physical being in the world that has been appointed and chosen for you to obey and listen to without breaking the first commandment. That's the mystery of the incarnation. Now, in John 6, again, you have this chosen type of language. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Appointment. Do you see the the, the begotting or the begetting nature of this anointing, of this appointment? Jesus is the one who is, chosen by God to be the Christ, the mediator, the propitiation, the high priest, the king, all these functional roles in the physical universe. He's the one. He's the chosen one. Now, in 1 John 5, verse 18, there is this sense that begetting means a kind of spiritual change for us as believers, which is also very interesting we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now in the KJV, it says begotten. We know that whoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. So beginning is, is relating to what? Is relating to the second birth, being born again, which is a change. It's an appointment, if you will. The question is: does the Bible teach or show situations where being born again is akin to an appointment of some kind? The answer is yes, interestingly enough. It is. Now, let's look in Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed, meaning, first off, if you have good theology when it comes to salvation that you know that god has a predestined plan that he has chosen some people to save which are called the elect he hasn't saved everybody those elect are appointed at various times in their life right to come to salvation so it's an appointment that you have when you're born again you were appointed to believe at that particular time appointment means something that is bound in space and time that's happening in time And we see also in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Again, he has not destined for us, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. So this is a destiny that's been appointed by God in Christ. Very, very important because all of these things, and this is this is another can of worms. All these things, again, are interrelated. If you don't have good salvation theology and you're an Arminian, remember Jacob Arminius, he was a subordinationist. That should tell you something. But if you're an Arminian, you're not going to realize these things. You're not going to realize that begotten means appointment. The Bible uses this term specifically for Christ as a choosing or a, an appointment of some kind. And it also uses it for believers, too, because the salvation is predestined. But you know what's not a surprise? Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism, they're not not teaching predestination. They are synergistic, meaning they're free will salvation based, which is a false gospel. So, of course, they are likely to get this wrong. Do you see the point? There's so many because, again, this is a Greek idea. This is a Greek idea, this whole free will salvation thing, because again, the Greeks believed that you could choose the good equally as you choose the bad. So these ideas are nothing new because the Greeks believed in an immortal soul, believed in the divinity within all these, these are old beliefs. And of course, some of these made their way into the church. And that's why a lot of the subordinationists were also like works-based salvation. Like we read with the anti-Trinitarian gospel. They were based on on free will, and so if you could choose the good, then it's up to you to choose the good. You're not relying on the Holy Spirit to conform you and in living the dance of life with God working through you, but rather trusting in your own work. That's why Eastern Orthodoxy is a works-based religion. That's why Catholicism is works-based. Do you see how all of this ties together? It's really, truly fascinating, but again, if you believe these things, you're not— you're very likely to make a mistake on the understanding of begotten. Because begotten, according to what the Hebrews, the author of the Hebrews uses it as, and the rest of the Bible, the scriptures that we looked at, is not dealing with Jesus being generated. It's dealing with the person of Jesus, the human person, being appointed to be the Messiah. It's not dealing with the Son being eternally generated from the Father. It's not an eternal reality. A begotten or begetting is a time and space related thing. It's a time bound thing. I mean, it happens in time. You can't be eternally begotten. That is a contradiction. It's like saying you're a Christian atheist or a Christian Zionist, one of the two. But now I want you to compare these these verses and all the things we talked about to other important places that are talking about begotting, which for example, John 1 verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son <clears throat> from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, in the KJV, excuse me for my voice, guys, it's getting a little hoarse. <clears throat> and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and the, and we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, does this mean we saw the glory as of the only generated son from the father? No, it's not telling you that. The word for, for the Greek here is <coughs> monogenes. Where is it? Here it is. Monogenes. Let me see if you can see it. Monogenes is not ut- eternally generated. Monogenes means unique and one of a kind. It's, it's not meaning created or generated or spirated or whatever other thing that you want to think. Monogenes means one of a kind. Now, we know that also from Genesis 22, verse 2, where it says, let's do the ESV. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Well, the problem with this statement is that Isaac was not the only son that abraham had he also had ishmael by that time so does this mean this is does does this mean only son in the sense like only begotten son like the only son that you had no in the kjv and he take take now thy son thy only son whom thou lovest and get thee into the so if we look actually in the uh you know what? Let me pull this up. Actually, it's in the Septuagint. I want to show you something in the Septuagint. All right. This is uh, Interlinear Study study Bible from the Septuagint. This is what I was looking for earlier. So, and he said, take your son, the beloved, whom you loved, Isaac. So, your only son is not meaning... The only son that you've physically had. The Septuagint translates it as agapepton, meaning beloved, the one that you love. There's a special distinction for this son that you love. He's the son of the promise. He's the chosen one, so to speak. And of course, we know that Abraham was considered a prophet by God. And the whole, you know, going to the mountain with Isaac was a prophecy. It was a physical prophecy that God was playing out through Abraham and Isaac of God sending the Christ, who is the physical incarnation of God, to the to be the propitiation for our sins. So understanding that is very important because, for example, when you look at John 3, verse 18, again, it's this begotten stuff. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son. Now in the KJV, it says in the only begotten son. So what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying you're condemned because you haven't believed in the only generated Son of God? The only eternally generated Son of God? No. The context with all of the things we're talking about is that you're condemned because you haven't believed in the, in the person that God has chosen, has put his seal of approval on, and has chosen to be the vessel for God in the world that you can communicate with. You have not believed in that? you're condemned. That's the point. So you see how all of this has to relate to appointment and how begotten is not what all these church fathers have told you it is and what tradition has told you it is because they were subordinationists. I hope you see that. Because again, if you're using the monarchical understanding of this, it doesn't make sense. Jesus is saying, he that believeth on him is not condemned. But he he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only eternally generated, spirated Son of God. That doesn't, like, why would he say that? That doesn't make any sense. Jesus is comparing two things. People who believe, who are not condemned, and people who don't believe and are condemned. Why are you condemned? Because you didn't believe in the eternally generated Son of God? No, because you didn't believe in the chosen vessel that God has chosen and announced throughout history and, and put his stamp of approval on and chosen for God to enter the world through. You didn't believe in that. Yeah, you're condemned. That's the point that's being made here. So what's the conclusion with this? Well, beginning has no bearing on Christ's existence or nature. He's not eternally generated or spirated from the Father. This is a Unitarian subordinationist understanding that is trying to reconcile the nature of God with monotheism. Again, it's an error. It's a Trinitarian error. It's not true. Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism are both wrong on this idea of begotten. They both, again, with those little triangles we looked at where... Both of them agree that the Son is eternally begotten from the Father, meaning he's eternally generated in in some way from the Father. So that is a tradition. That's not what the Bible teaches you. Begotten is an appointment that is made. It's not something that's from eternity past. It's an appointment that is made. And of course, in some sense, you know, he is eternally begotten in the sense that God, well, I don't wanna say that. I I wanna say that when the Father decided to bring about the, the world and give the people to Christ who he's chosen out of the world to save, then the son agreed to that. But you see, the son is part of that decision. Again, this goes back to the idea that economy is not based on subordination with a free being who, who is God is love. God is love, but God is also triune. that means that there is love between the persons. So everything is done out of cooperation, not out of subordination. It's done out of cooperation. The Father predestined this plan for the Son to be glorified so that the people could worship and love the Son to the glory of the Father. And the Son agreed to it. The Son agreed to the appointment. The Son agreed to going to the cross. It was a free choice by God as a triune being. It's fascinating to think about. But that right there, what I just described, is a mystery. That's a little harder to keep in your brain and, and, and you know wrestle with it than to say, oh, well, it's simple. He's just eternally generated. You see, it reduces the mystery. And it's really, it doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. But now, now we get to the, <laughs> to the, to the big one, which is the third problem, which is that the father alone has a aseity. Gosh, this is going to be a while to talk about. But anyway, number three is that the father has a aseity and he alone has a sayity, right? Christ doesn't have a satiety And of course, this comes from verses like John 17, verse 3, where they're taken out of context. We'll read them again. This is just, uh, and this is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God, that Jesus and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I'm going to go back to ESV because Old English for me is tough to read. But again, this is taken out of context. Say, See, 7, John 17, 3. Jesus is sent by the Father, and the Father is the only true God. That must be it. This is a Unitarian's love this verse, and sort of Muslims, by the way, which should tell you something. Also, John 20, verse 17. Let's look at that. Jesus said, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. So you see, there you go. Jesus has a God. Therefore, he must be different than God. But now we have to remember to to unpack this idea that the Father alone has a seity and to refute the understanding of the verses I just quoted. It's very important to understand that there's two mysteries, again, I I say this again, that are intersecting in Christ in the person of Jesus. You have the Trinity, which is a mystery, one God and three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, and you have the mystery of the incarnation, one person, two natures, that divine nature entered reality through the Son, who was fully God and fully man. How these two mysteries go together is like another mystery that is beyond comprehension. It's really fascinating to think about, but if you try to reduce those mysteries, you're gonna run into error. Remember that Jesus is fully human and fully God. Remember also that Jesus was authenticating himself many times throughout scriptures when he was talking and saying like listen I'm from God I am he's authenticating himself he's not saying that he's generated from God he's eternally generated that he's eternally subordinate to God he's saying I'm from God I'm authentically from the God that you worship and I am God this is the thing I mean it's a fundamentally different reality especially at the time when people considered that God was not somebody that you could see. Imagine imagine the reality of now God is somebody that you can see. That's a profound reality. So remember also that the apostles called Jesus God. So this idea that the word God is used for exclusively the father is not true. We're gonna look at some examples for it, but ultimately the apostles called <coughs> Jesus God. We looked at that in a previous episode. They believe Jesus was God. They believe Jesus was the same God that God the Father is. Not the same person, but the same level of God. There's no difference. Jesus is God. In Revelation, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. That's what Yahweh says. So you have to reconcile that because if you're a monarchical Trinitarian, that just doesn't fly. If Jesus says, I am the first and the last, then what he's saying is I'm Yahweh, the self-existent God which we'll see in just a bit because he's made a lot of claims to self-existence. But nonetheless, a monarchical Trinitarian will say, the Son and the Spirit exist because they're eternally generated or eternally proceeding from the Father in some way. But this is not taught in the Bible anywhere. It really isn't. This is just Greek philosophy. And it creates a division in God's ontology, in his nature, that, that compartmentalizes God in a certain way. Do you see what I'm saying? But it's basically, you have the Father that's the source, and then you have the Son and the Spirit who are dependent upon the Father. This is a, a very big problem. Because if the Father alone has a seity, Jesus necessarily is a different kind of divine being than the Father. He's different. You can't get around that. You, you can't Philosophize your way out of it. Jesus and the Father are different if the Father alone has a aseity. And this is the problem because it also leads to the idea that the Father can exist separately from the Son. It really does. If the Father is the source, then the Father can exist all by himself. And maybe there was some point in eternity past when the Father was alone and then he generated the, the Son. I mean, these are, again, they're trying to fit... Jesus and the Son and God and the nature of God into a box that could be understood through sequence and putting things in different spaces and and different times. But you can't do that because it's a mystery. God is a mystery. But now, when it says that the Father is dependent upon the Son, because again, This stuff is so crazy to think about, but it's like the father is generating the son and the the son is being generated by the father. So, okay, now you're creating a dependence between the two. You're creating a dependence on Jesus being dependent on the father to be generated, but you also have a dependence of the father. The father's nature and ontology depend on him generating the son. That's part of who he is. He's generating the son. The father is not the father unless the son exists to be generated by him. And the son is not the son unless the father is generating him. So now you have a real problem because now because of the interdependence of the persons with each other, it refutes the whole thing. Do you see how this is self-refuting? By trying to say that the father is the only... I hope I can make sense of this for you. By trying to say that the father alone is the one who is the source, the unsourced source. You're drawing a line between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And what that makes, what that creates is dependency. Now you have a dependency because the Son is dependent on the Father. Well, that dependency also goes the other way around. The father's dependent on the son because the father's identity is that he generates the son. Well, if there's no son, then he's not generating anybody. he's not the father anymore. See so you know how they're interdependent on each other by creating dependency. And because they're interdependent on each other, then the father is not the unsourced source anymore because he is not independent of the son. If he is independent of the son, then the son and the father are different types of divine beings. So either way you slice it, if you try to defend it and say, well, no, the father is independent of the son. Well, then that means the father and the son are very different beings. Do you see the problem? If you say, well, yeah, they're dependent on each other. Well, now the father is not the unsourced source because he's dependent on something external of himself, the son. So either way you slice it, it's self-refuting. It's really, it's really silly. And it, it really misleads you into thinking that, the Father can exist separately, which again makes a polarizing effect in the Trinity. Remember subordinationism and what we talked about in that episode, and even this episode, if Christ is eternally subordinate, if the Son is eternally subordinate, that changes his ontology. So if he's eternally being generated, that also changes his ontology. It makes the Father and the Son basically not the same. And this is a big problem. This is why... This is a heresy. Monarchical Trinitarianism, this third and final point that we're discussing, is the reason why monarchical Trinitarianism is a problem. It's a heresy. I dare say to call it a heresy because it is. Because it lessens Christ. Just like Calvin said, even though Calvin ironically believed in the monarchy of the Father, which again, it's just people have debated these things for centuries. And even Protestants have gotten it wrong, unfortunately. But God is immutable. He doesn't change. So generating the Son at some point in the past, even if it's eternity past, is a change. That is a change of some kind. That's It's basically saying that the Unitarian Father God brought forth the Son and the Spirit at some point in eternity past. That's a change in the Godhead. Now, some will argue that this is outside of time, so it can't be measured. Again, there's philosophical gymnastics but it still implies causality in sequence because again, we have to put things in separate spaces in different times in our mind. It doesn't work to have things overlap like that because we don't exist in the spirit world. So you're trying to put God in a sequence, the father to the son. Okay. Now there's a sequence. I can understand it. They're in two places in two different spaces at two different times. See how that works. So either way it's sequential and sequence means that there's separation within God but God is God doesn't change God doesn't have separation and so this is wrong now the bible says that Jesus is Yahweh several times we looked at this before and we're going to look at it again because i really hope and pray that people especially if you're eastern orthodox that you will see the truth on this because your teaching and the teaching that you believe and you rely on these creeds and church fathers They're leading you astray. Revelation 1, 17 through 18. Just read this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. Okay, who is that? I died. Oh, that's Jesus. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. Now compare this to earlier in Revelation, where the quote is, I am the Alpha and the Omega says who? Who says this? Says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, how do you reconcile that with 10 verses later? The Lord God, Almighty God, you would say, oh, that's the Father. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, meaning I'm the first and the last. Jesus says that 10 verses later. I am the first and the last. How do you reconcile that? Does Jesus not have aseity? You're going to make that distinction where the Bible clearly doesn't make that distinction at all? So this is, again, it's not biblically based. It's based on tradition. Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, who's speaking? Yahweh. The King. Yahweh is the King. Yahweh is a triune being, is the King. Of Israel and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Besides the one who says, I am the first, I am the last, there is no other God. The Lord God Almighty says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Then Jesus tells you, 10 verses later in Revelation, he's the first and the last. Now you go back to all these verses, especially in the Old Testament, and say, oh man, Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh entered reality through the person of Christ. That means the Son is self-existent, just like the Father. doesn't mean there's three gods. It just means the Son is self-existent. The Bible does not make a distinction between the Father and the Son on terms of self-existence. In fact, if anything, it tells you the opposite. Now look at a couple more verses that are very important. Isaiah 9, verse 6, prophecy of Jesus. For us, to, to us, a child is born... To us the son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be wonderful counselor, mighty God, as in God Almighty, everlasting Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one, Prince of Peace. Now, again, I'm not arguing modalism. I'm just saying there's no distinction between the Son and the Father in terms of divinity. Not at all. Not self-existence, nothing. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. That means he was not... It didn't say in the beginning the Word was generated. In eternity the Word was generated from the Father. It doesn't say that at all. It says the Word was in the beginning, self-existence. He was with God, meaning distinct from the Father in this case. God is not always used for the Father exclusively, but in this case it is. And the Word was God. The Word was also God. Just like God is God, the Word is also God. Equal. Equally God. Very important. John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Does this parallel John 1? Yes, it does. The only God who is at the Father's side, who is also God, he has made him known. Well, that doesn't make any sense from our perspective of two things can fit cannot fit into uh, in the same space at the same time doesn't make sense but from the perspective of god who's not beyond who is beyond time and space who's in the spirit realm who god is spirit it makes perfect sense no one has ever seen god i.e the father the only god well who's that is that the father wait the one who's at the father's side oh that's the son so the son is the only god he has made him known So now go back to those verses like John 17, 3, where Jesus says, the only God or the true God. How do you reconcile that? When John is literally telling you in the beginning that Jesus is God and he's the only God, the only God who's at the Father's side, who is that? That's Jesus. He's the only God? Well, that only makes sense from a Trinitarian perspective of co-equal, co-eternal persons with an economy that's not based on subordination but an economy that's based on love and cooperation of a free being that is God. So you have to reconcile these things because when you take things out of context, it's very easy to form a heresy. We talked about that in the last episode. John 5, verse 23. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. You can't do that. If the son is slightly different than the father in any way, especially if the son has, doesn't have self-existence, that's not glorifying to the son. And it's not glorifying to the father either. John 8, 57 through 59. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Now, that doesn't seem like much of a statement until you read the second one. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple. Now you see what they, they picked up what he was laying down. Before Abraham was, I am. Like, wait, what do you mean? Oh, wait a minute. He's making a claim to the eternal self-existent God. He's saying, I am the one who was before Abraham. And that's why they picked up stones to try to stone him because they picked up what he was laying down. He was making a claim to pre-existence. But you see, all those church fathers and all the people who are subordinationists and all the people who believe all this stuff, they don't see these verses where Jesus claims pre-existence. Very clearly so. Very clearly so. And if that's the case, then the Father doesn't have pre-existence. He's like, not alone with pre-existence. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have pre-existence. It's not unique to the Father, is what I wanted to say. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, And all drank from the spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. But wait a minute. If you go back to the Old Testament now, with this revelation, who followed them in the desert? It was Yahweh that followed them in the desert. So Christ is Yahweh incarnate. Romans 9, verse 5, To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, meaning the chosen one, the, the only begotten, the begotten vessel of God, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Mic drop. Christ, who is God over all. Is there any other God? No, there's only one God. And that God has made himself known through Christ. How does that work? Well, it's a mystery. That's the point. 2 Peter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is God? Jesus. Jesus is God. Now, of course, monarchical Trinitarians say, well, yeah, Jesus is God. See, th- See why this is so tricky? Because they acknowledge that Jesus is God, Again, despite the exalted language, there is this understanding that Jesus is different from the Father. You can't extract that from the Bible because the Bible teaches you that Jesus is God in the same way that the Father is God. So when you believe that Jesus is God, but then, oh, well, but there's an asterisk there. The asterisk does not exist in the Bible. Titus 2.13, same thing. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, and Savior Jesus Christ. Both of these apply to Jesus. We looked at this with the Granville Sharps rule. Very important. Genesis 3 verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God, Yahweh God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. Now, here's the question. They're interacting with Yahweh here, but Yahweh has a body. And yet the Father, nobody has seen the Father not even Adam and Eve. So that means when Adam and Eve were were interacting with Yahweh and he had a body in the garden, it was somebody else within God, i.e. the Son, a pre-incarnate form of the Son. But it's still, Yahweh, Yahweh God was interacting with them. There's only one God, and that's Yahweh. And Yahweh God was entered reality through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Jesus is the vessel, the begotten vessel by which Yahweh made himself known to mankind. He's a self-existent creator. Now compare also this to Numbers, again, Old Testament stuff, but these are shadows that you can reinterpret with the light of the New Testament. Numbers 12, verse 5 through 8, "...and the Lord Yahweh came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam." And and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of Yahweh. Why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So the Yahweh has a form. And yet we know that there is a formless Yahweh in the Spirit and in the Father. So who could this possibly be that Moses is talking to or that they're all talking to? It's the Son. The Son is speaking from Yahweh. Now, it doesn't say that explicitly in the text, but through deduction, we can see very clearly what's going on. And the Bible also says that Jesus receives glory as God and that the Father is glorified through Jesus receiving maximal glory. This is very important. 1 John 2 verse 23, no one one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Philippians 2 verse 9 through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. God the Father predestined this plan for the Son to be glorified through Jesus, the person of Jesus, and that would glorify God the Father. You seeing Jesus as God, as the uncreated self existent being, creator of the universe, is what glorifies the Father. Ironically, in an attempt to glorify the Father, all these subordinationist church fathers and subordinationist you know, people throughout the centuries and trying to be monotheistic and trying to glorify the father, they have sidestepped, they have sidestepped the son and diminished the son. And in so doing, they aren't glorifying the father. This is what's at stake because the Bible tells you that the way to glorify the father is to worship and glorify the son fully. that You honor the son as you honor the father. That's what the Bible teaches. You're not honoring the son as, as you honor the Father. If the Son doesn't have self-existence, if the Son is eternally generated and dependent upon the Father, that's not honoring the Son as the origin and the, and the source of all things, as the self-existent God. Again, you know, Eastern Orthodox people will probably have a lot to say about that and say, you know, that's not what we believe. Well, ultimately you have to examine your, the the origin of your beliefs and the origin of your beliefs or tradition. And they're certainly not in alignment with the Bible. Now, another important point to add to this is on the progressive revelation of God's name, which adds, again, to the idea that Jesus is Yahweh. He is the self-existent God of the Old Testament that was revealed to Moses, that was revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there's very important progressive revelation of that name, that leading up to Jesus Because in Exodus 6, verse 3, God says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Very important. Mm -hmm. But but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So you have a distinction where the patriarchs knew God as God Almighty. That's what they knew. They they just knew him as God Almighty. But then with Moses, there's another level of intimacy, where Moses, we looked at this with the name of the Lord, with the word of the Lord, a couple episodes previously with the Old Testament. Jesus in the Old Testament, very interesting episode, check it out. But we looked at this as how God takes a step further in revealing who he is. He's revealing his name as the self-existent being. He's the only self-existent being in the universe through the name Yahweh. Now, of course, Yahweh is an abbreviation of Eyeh Asher Eyeh, or in Greek, ego e mi ho on, I am the being one. But this is the name that God gave Moses. He's the source. He's the self-existent one. But he, in this sense, is a triune being. If you remember, the burning bush was the angel of the Lord that was in the burning bush, saying these things. And we know the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Son. And so you're dealing with now self-existence in the Old Testament that very clearly applies to both the Son and the Son and the invisible father that you don't see, as well as the spirit as well. But that one's a little harder to prove. But nonetheless, you have this revelation. In the New Testament, you have Jesus now, Yeshua, which means salvation, who comes into the world, and he's the appointed vessel for Yahweh to enter and to do his ministry through the Son. And so you have a progressive revelation, meaning that Jesus is the name that you're supposed to relate to God with. He's the, that's why all these sacred name people, it's like, look, I've talked about this before and we talked about it in a previous episode. Yahweh is the name of the Old Testament. Jesus is Yahweh. But Yeshua, trans, transliterated into Greek as Jesus, and Yesus translated into English is Jesus. There's a lot of Yesus in Greek in the in Septuagint when there's a name Joshua mentioned. There's a lot of Joshua's in the Old Testament and a lot of in the Greek Septuagint, there's a lot of Yesus's because that's how you transliterate Joshua. So whether you choose to use Joshua or Yesus or Jesus, it doesn't, it doesn't make a difference. That's the name that God has chosen to reveal to you about who he is. He's a person with a name and that name means salvation. But Jesus is also Yahweh, who is the self-existent name that was revealed to Moses. Very, very interesting. But again, a couple verses to support all this. Romans 8, verse 28 through 30. And we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Golden chain of redemption. Very important set of verses. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also. Glorify. This is such an important set of verses that most people do not get correct these days because they have swerved into Armenian philosophy. And really, it's it's synergistic philosophy, which is makes you no different to the Jews, to the Muslims, to Catholics, to Orthodox, to Mormons. They're all synergists. God predestined those who is going to save. God the Father predestined the people to give to Christ the Son. And the Son freely chose to enter reality and to atone on behalf of those people to receive the worship and glory so that the Father would also be glorified. Very, very interesting. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If Christ was a created being or somehow less than the Father, this is a problem. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. The, what, how all this ties in is very simple. The plan of salvation was predetermined by God. And that plan is to glorify and worship Jesus to the maximum that is what glorifies the Father. All of that is predestined. It was predestined by God. The people who would come to Christ, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. All that is predestined. But that is predestined to glorify God. Reality is predestined to glorify God. And in this case, we're glorifying the Son to the glory of the Father. Glory works through the persons. Very important. But all of this is predestined. It's going You're going to see... Why this is important, in Acts 4, 26 to 28, the cross was predestined. That means the people who were destined to believe Christ and the people who were destined to not believe in him and crucify him were predestined. That's what the Bible says. And so why is this so important? It's because, well, first off, Eastern Orthodoxy do not acknowledge predestination. When Jesus says in John 14 to verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Probably one of the few times, maybe I don't even know if there's another one, where Jesus refers to himself or to to the Godhead in a plural form, which is very interesting. We will come to him and make our home with him, meaning when you're born again, both the Father and the Son come into your heart. And yet the new covenant that God says is that he's going to put his new spirit in you. He's going to put his spirit in you. So now you have a Trinitarian entering of God the Father comes into your heart, Jesus comes into your heart, and the spirit comes into your spirit. How do you explain that? Well, you explain it with a Trinitarian perspective, not a monarchical perspective or a subordinationist perspective. But Eastern Orthodoxy denies predestination, and this is the real problem because... When you diminish the Son in any way, this is not glorifying to the Father. Any sort of diminishing, let alone one way that says the Son is not self-existent. His, his self-existence depends on the Father, or He's dependent upon the Father in any way. God the Father originated the plan of salvation by predestining a people for His Son. God the Father purposed that this people would be conformed to the image of His Son through the Holy Spirit just like we read through Romans 8. God the Father predestined the cross, the elect, and the plan of salvation as a whole so that his Son would be glorified and that would glorify the Father. This predestined plan coming to fruition. This is how the Father is glorified. Very important because the Father does not receive glory separately, right? Or or independently, I should say, from Christ. He doesn't receive more or less glory but he receives glory by us glorifying Christ. Do you see the error with all this subordinationist monarchical view? Because it sidesteps the son and ultimately tries to glorify the father in in trying to be more monotheistic. But God has told you how to be monotheistic. God has said, glorify the son. Glorify the son and worship the son. He's the one that Yahweh entered reality through, that you can have a a person to look at and to relate to. And when you glorify the Son in the maximal way possible, that is how the Father of the Trinity is glorified. so important when we understand these things. But when we say that the Father alone is God, like they do in monarchical Trinitarianism, like the Nicene Creed implies, that the Father alone has aseity, you're ignoring the predestined plan of salvation. Do you see the great error? You're ignoring what the Father has actually predestined for you to do and and, and glorify the Son fully so that he is glorified. Christ is our God. Christ is Yahweh. He's the God that we worship. He's the one that we rejoice and focus on 100%. He's the one that we look to, and that gives us the ability to glorify the Father by glorifying the Son. It's a relational situation because God is relational. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now again, Eastern Orthodox deny predestination so they don't see these things. They don't look at these verses. And so they're very easy to drift off into other ways of doing things because they don't see that this is a predestined plan. Because if you did, if you did see that the plan of salvation is for it was predestined for the Son to be glorified so that the Father would be glorified by that, if you saw that that was predestined, then you wouldn't, misalign with it. You'd say, oh, ooh, well, if that's the plan, why, what am I doing believing these things? That the Father alone has a sayety and the Son is dependent upon him. Do you see? But the Eastern Orthodox and Catholics as well deny deny predestination, which is, again, that's the true gospel. And of course it's no wonder that they're works-based. Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism are also tied down by tradition. And, and and like creeds, church fathers, all these different things, you know, that are outside of scripture, which are obviously very contradictory, as you hopefully have seen by now. Eastern Orthodoxy is also heavily influenced by autocratic and authoritarian regimes. I'm Romanian. I, I came from Romania. Romania is Orthodox. But Romania used to also be communist. There's, the East is very influenced by authoritarian subordinationist type of views. It's just an autocratic influence in that culture. And so people tend to resonate with this idea that the father alone is God and the son is subordinate. Eastern Orthodoxy is also influenced by mysticism in the sense that true reality is unknowable. And so there's this emphasis on the mystical and emanations, which we'll talk about next time. Not next time, next time, but in the future, short, short future. It's also influenced by Mary worship and, and making the son very diminutive. This is also also especially true in Catholicism with Mary worship and, and the whole Mary thing and constantly putting Jesus as this little baby that's inferior to Mary and, and presenting him constantly as this little child when really Jesus is God. He's Yahweh God. Mary is dead and awaiting resurrection. But if you believe in Mary and Mariology and and. Mary is a co-redemptress, especially in Catholicism. Then you're likely to diminish the role of the son. And you're likely to believe, well, yeah, the son is eternally generated, spirated from the father. It must be because the son is just the son. As opposed to believing what the Bible teaches you. The son is equally Yahweh, just like the father is Yahweh. But that's an influence in both religions. Another influence is teaching Uh, that the procession of the Holy Spirit is basically only from the Father, which is a denial of the filioque. And this is wrong. We looked at it. But if you believe that, if you believe the Spirit only comes from the Father, then it also predisposes you to this subordinationist kind of thinking. Hopefully you can see that. Another one we talked about, again, is the um, misunderstanding of the word begotten. Begotten in terms of appointment versus begotten in terms of how we think of begotten, like some sort of generation or creation. So this is a real, real big misunderstanding that both religions have, which leads them into errors, into various shades of subordinationism. Not full-on subordinationism, but it's practically subordinationism because it's wrong. It diminishes Christ and that is not in alignment with the plan of salvation. Our relationship today to God has changed because of the progressive revelation of God's name. We don't have to have this impersonal relationship to an abstract God, but rather we have an intimate, real, physical person and name that we can relate to. Jesus is the one who we relate to, and we see to, and we come to. And this glorifies the Father. It glorifies the Father because that is the predestined plan. When we make the Father special, it means that in some way he is a quote better God than the Sun, in the sense that he the one that you can't see is the one that's better than the one that you can't see, which is just not true. The whole point of the Bible is the opposite is the opposite of that thing, which is God has revealed himself to be loved and adored and worshipped by living physical beings. Because we need a physical world to exist. God has revealed himself. And when you say, well, the unseen God is the better one, he's the one that's really the source, and he's the one that's got self-existence, and, you know, everybody comes from him. Now you're putting your attention to the unseen. This is mysticism. Of course, if you know anything about Eastern Orthodoxy, it's very influenced by Platonic ideals and mysticism. But it's not the gospel, it's not the revealed gospel. Monarchical Trinitarianism, ultimately, straddles the line between unitarianism subordinationism and partialism. You can saw you you can see how all those church fathers really straddled these lines. It's really fascinating. And it's of course it's tied up with philosophy and justified with philosophy and well, you know, it's they share the same essence but they, they don't share, you know, the same aseity. Like what does that really even mean? How can you not share the same how can you share the same essence and one person be self-existent while the other is not? That doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. It's just philosophical gymnastics. Economy, going back to the first episode, the importance of economy, but economy and unity must be applied and understood to the Godhead loosely in the sense that if you go too much one or the other, you're going to run into problems. We looked at this in the last episode. Too much focus on economy equals division like Unitarianism and Partialism. Too much focus on union leads to modalism or lesser, like inseparable operations, which is a teaching that's also pretty much like a heresy kind of. I mean, it really is. It ultimately, if you boil these things down, they are just inaccurate at the very least, but at the most, they drift into heresy. They really do. And of course, when you make the father and the son dependent upon each other with, with this idea of generation... Then you're creating a sense of a sort of partialism, really, you think about it. It really is creating some sort of partialism because the father is kind of not complete unless he's generating the son. And the son isn't who he is unless he's being generated by the father. So you have a sense of partialism there that is just, again, it's people are going to defend it with philosophy. No, that's not what it is. It's eternally generated, they're both God. Well, what is it really? We're, we're getting lost in language and linguistics and semantics. At the end of the day, it diminishes the equality of Jesus with God, and diminishes the revelation that Yahweh, the eternal self-existing God, revealed Himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what it. Did. This is the mystery of the incarnation. Because again, glorifying Jesus to the maximum is what glorifies the Father. This is the plan. Jesus, if Jesus doesn't have a then this is not glorifying Christ to the maximum. It's really not it creates an ontological separation between God. And that is something that you don't want to do because now you have multiple gods. You really do. If there's an ontological separation, no matter what level of it, no matter how small, you have two different gods or three, I guess, depending if you're binatarian or a Trinitarian. By the way, you know, a lot of binatarians believe in subordinationist beliefs, which that makes you a polytheist. Because if the son is slightly different than the father, he's subordinate, then you have two different gods. You really do. You don't have one God existing, one being that is subordinate to himself. How does that work? You ever think about that with this whole subordinationist thing? If, if Jesus is actually God, the same with father, then there is no subordination. There's co-equal and co-eternal. It's self-defeating to have interdependence between the father and the son being generated. It's just, again, it's either you're saying that if the father depends on the son to be generated, then you have, you're self-defeating because then the father is not the unsourced source. If the father doesn't depend on the, on the son to be, to exist or to be who he is, then now you're saying that the father can exist without the son, which is partialism. Either way, it's wrong. So because the premise that you start with is wrong, to be able to link them up in some sort of dependency with generation. Hope that makes sense. But at the, at the end of the day, it's just not in alignment with scripture. And it's not in alignment with the with God's plan of salvation, it's really not. And the last point I'm going to leave you with this, folks, is that it's not, or I should say, it's taught by Mystery Babylon. Now, Mystery Babylon, if you've run into my End time series, I highly recommend you go watch it, is essentially the institutionalization of religion, which Eastern Orthodoxy is part of. The Catholic system is the epitome of that. And Eastern Orthodoxy is one of the harlots, now, if you're an Orthodox and you're watching this, I'm not trying to insult you, but Eastern Orthodoxy is one of the harlots that came out of the Catholic Church. Of course, Orthodox will say, no, 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 they separated from us, but that's that's what they tell you. The Catholic Church is identified as the, as the mother of harlots, and that means that all the churches that came from the Catholic Church are harlots. Why? Because they espouse some of her teachings. Teachings like... eternal generation, teachings like the Eucharist, sacrificing Christ, teachings like Sunday rest and Sunday Sabbath. All of these things, you know, Mary praying to Mary, the saints, all of these things, water baptism. This is mystery Babylon. The Bible tells you to get out of mystery Babylon so you don't share in her plagues. You have to get out of religion because it's not doing you any good. And Eastern Orthodoxy is religion. And you know that it's true because everything that diminishes christ and elevates other things like for example with mary worship and catholicism look in the occult world like isis unveiled or the secret doctrine by helena blavatsky they believe that mary is a picture of lucifer and there's a whole can of worms on that i'm not going to open it here because we're at the end now thank goodness this is quite the episode but ultimately this is, if you, if you know anything about anything, there's a lot of occult things going on. And I'll just leave it at that. Because it's all about diminishing Christ and shifting your attention elsewhere. Whether it's outside or to something that you can't see, as long as it diminishes Christ. Because that, actually, they know the truth. They know that if you give glory to Christ, it gives glory to the Father. So by diminishing Christ, they can take away glory from the Father. Of course, nobody can do that in actuality, but that's what they're trying to do. And that's what this is all about. It's been about diminishing Christ in any way possible. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful with how we believe things and what we believe, where they're coming from. This has been a a pretty long episode. If you're still here, thank you for being here. I know this is a lot of information, but I had to pack it into one episode because there's just so much to talk about. And doing doing this stuff in separate episodes, I, I would need the context. I needed the context to talk about monarchical Trinitarianism. Because again, like about a billion people in the world believe this. And so I think it has great impact. So I hope this has been edifying for you. I hope you've learned something about the nature of God. I hope that if you know anybody in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, that you can share this with them so they can study and learn and realize just another, another reason to leave the Eastern Orthodox Church, really. Like I said, I was Eastern Orthodox, and I'm glad that God opened my eyes. So until next time, stay sharp and cling to the Lord, read your Bible, and take care. God bless.